Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to this week's uh, Failed Critics Podcast, Stanley Kubrick being inducted into the Corridor of Praise, so that is all we are going to talk about this week, no quiz, no news, no what we've been watching, no new release, no triple bill, one hour-ish approximately of Stanley Kubrick praise and talk and discussion. I'm your host Steve Norman, Um, I'm joined by James Diamond. Hello. No longer the oldest person I've podcasted with. I know. I, I need to get on a podcast with him now so I can start taking the piss out no, of No, I can't do any age. No, I, no, I just feel like I can't make any age jokes about you and I'm really upset yeah, about exactly. it. Yeah, exactly. Thi- it's brought things into perspective, hasn't it, Steve? You and know, I don't you'll re- be old one day. And I don't really know enough about Leicester to take the mick out of that, but then you were born near where I was born, so I can't re- yeah. I just don't know anymore. I'll have to find a I new know. angle to take the mick out of you. Yeah, you'll find something. Plen- I've got plenty of weaknesses. Bear with me. Uh, Jerry McCauley's here. Hello. And so is Owen Hughes. Hello. Uh, well, I intend on doing very little work on this podcast because <laughs> James is taking over and leading every kind of discussion and induction and so on. Steve, you said that like you do so much work in every other podcast. Do all of it. <laughs> <laughs> I am the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Um, yeah, do you want me to pick it up from the <laughs> yeah, that on that on that mantle? Take it, take it over. Okay, yeah. So, um, so yeah, today we are honouring uh, 
one of the single greatest film directors to have ever picked up a camera. Uh, someone who's not only created some incredible films, but who has actually changed the world of filmmaking on both a stylistic and a technical level over and over again. I remember when, when we set up Corridor of Praise, one of the entry requirements we agreed on was that um, any inductees must not have an Oscar in their main category uh, of their work because we didn't want to just celebrate the usual suspects and things like that. And the fact that tonight's subject has never received an Oscar for direction, to be honest, is a bit of a travesty. Still, the Academy's loss is our gain, and it means we get to devote a whole episode to my favourite director and probably, I'd say, the podcast's overall favourite director. Um, Jack Nicholson said about him, everyone sort of acknowledges he's the man, and I still think that underrates him. Martin Scorsese said one of his pictures is worth ten of someone else's. Eight of he's only made thirteen films. Um, eight of them are in the IMDb top two fifty. Ten of them are in the most recent Sight and Sound top two fifty poll published last year. And so I'd like to say welcome to the Fell Critics Corridor of Praise, Mister Stanley Kubrick. Um, first off, then, what what was the first Kubrick film you guys remember watching, uh, Steve? Uh, it was probably. The Shining, it might have been... No, it wasn't A Clockwork Orange. My brother done that for GCSE English. I'd done Lord of the Flies. So, no, it was mm. The Shining. Welcome to this week's uh, Failed Critics Podcast, Stanley Kubrick being inducted into the Corridor of Praise, so that is all we are going to talk about this week, no quiz, no news, no what we've been watching, no new release, no triple bill, one hour-ish approximately of <laughs> Stanley Kubrick praise and talk and discussion. I'm your host Steve Norman, um, I'm joined by James Diamond. Hello. No longer the oldest person I've podcasted with. I know. I, I need to get on a podcast with him now so I can start taking the piss out. No, of I can't do any age. No, no, I just feel like I can't make any age jokes about you, and I'm really upset yeah, about exactly. it. Yeah, exactly. I've brought things. It's brought things into perspective, hasn't it, Steve? Yeah. And I don't. You'll re- be old one day. 
And I don't really know enough about Leicester to take the mick out of that. But then you were born near where I was born, so I can't. Yeah. I just don't know anymore. I will have to find a I new know. angle to take the mick out of you. Yeah, you'll find something. Bear with plen- me. I've got plenty of weaknesses. Bear with me. Uh, Jerry McCauley's here. Hello. And so is Owen Hughes. Hello. Uh, well, I intend on doing very little work on this podcast because <laughs> James is taking over and leading every kind of discussion and induction and so on. Steve, you said that like you do so much work in every other podcast. Do all of it. <laughs> <laughs> I am the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Um, yeah, do you want me to pick it up from the <laughs> yeah, that on that on that mantle, take it take it over. Okay, yeah, so um t- yeah, today we are honoring uh one of the single greatest film directors to have ever picked up a camera. Uh someone who's not only created some incredible films, but who has actually changed the world of filmmaking on both a stylistic and a technical level over and over again. I remember when when we set up Corridor of Praise, one of the entry requirements we agreed on was that um, any inductees must not have an Oscar in their main category uh, of their work because we didn't want to just celebrate the usual suspects and things like that. And the fact that tonight's subject has never received an Oscar for direction, to be honest, is a bit of a travesty. Still, the Academy's loss is our gain, and it means we get to devote a whole episode to my favourite director and probably, I'd say, the podcast's overall favourite director. Um, Jack Nicholson said about him, everyone sort of acknowledges he's the man, and I still think that underrates him. Martin Scorsese said one of his pictures is worth ten of someone else's. Eight of he's only made thirteen films. Um, eight of them are in the IMDb top two hundred and fifty. Ten of them are in the most recent Sight and Sound top two hundred and fifty poll published last year. And so I'd like to say welcome to the Fell Critics Corridor of Praise, Mister Stanley Kubrick. Um, first off, then, what what was the first Kubrick film you guys remember watching, uh, Steve? Uh, it was probably The Shining. It might have been. No, it wasn't a Clockwork Orange. My brother done that for GCSE English. I'd done Lord of the Flies. So, no, it was mm. The Shining. The Shining, okay. Was that kind of late night on your own, recorded off TV or something like that? It was probably on TV, um, but it was probably, yeah. yeah, more or less on my own, like, yeah, in my early teens, probably. Scared the crap out of you. <laughs> it, it's an early time to watch The Shining. That's... Yeah, um, but, well, it was on. I watched it. <laughs> <laughs> That's not to listen to a third session about Steve's troubled childhood. No, we could be here all night. Well, exactly. <laughs> Point Jerry, not, not where they touch you, Steve. <laughs> chill out, oh, Jerry. Just Steve. chill out. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry, what was your first Kubrick film? Um... I think the first one was Full Metal Jacket. I think. See the Full Metal Jacket or Eyes Wide Shut, bizarrely. I'm not a fan of Eyes Wide Shut. No, but Full Metal Jacket, yeah, on a VHS in a cottage in Wales. I remember it well. (laughs) As as well you should, being a cottage in Wales. That's that's memorable on its own. Yeah. There you go. Owen? 
Um, I've got a feeling it was Spartacus, but I was probably too young to properly remember it other than like the odd scene. The, the first one I can remember actually choosing to watch and sort of making sure I had it was The Shining, which I, this was, I, I think I was about sort of 15. It was back when we had 56k modems anyway, and I actually downloaded a copy of it on a 56k wow, modem. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that was a tip, Yeah. Um, and I remember thinking that was a bit shit, really. Because <laughs> <laughs> only kind of like as I got older and watched it again and thought, actually, no, that's, that's a brilliant film. Yeah. The you know, first time I saw it, I was massively underwhelmed by. Oh, wait. Did, how many weeks did it take you to download that film? <laughs> Honestly, I've no idea. I can remember it was about 750 megabytes, though. I'm thinking that was a huge file. On a 56k modem. Yeah. Uh, did you have unlimited AOL or something like that? <laughs> Possible, no, uh, no, what did what, what was it called? It was something like it was 2p a minute or something like that. Jesus Christ. Yeah. You, you probably could have bought the video. Probably, probably yeah. Could have bought the box set. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, mine was uh, A Clockwork Orange. I remember I was uh, 17, I think, and I was, I might, like Owen, I might have seen Spartacus at an earlier age, and I remember seeing it, you know, the, all the kind of Swords and Sandals films kind of merged into one before a certain mm-hmm. age for me. Um, but yeah, it was like I remember getting a Clockwork Orange off of the friend of a friend, and it was a black and white kind of pirated copy because it still wasn't available in this country. And that, it was at the time I was just starting, I was studying media at college at the time, uh, and I watched that, and it it just didn't look like anything I'd ever seen ever. Uh, and I think that one really stuck with me. Um, yeah, Kubrick. Uh, I only realised quite recently Stanley Kubrick wasn't English I feel really stupid about this now it was probably weeks ago rather than even months ago <laughs> because I remember when he died it was the you know Stanley Kubrick the eccentric film director who lived in England like and made all his films in England I just I just naturally assumed that he was English um, but no, he was actually born in Brooklyn, which I'm sure all of you knew. Um, his dad bought him a camera on his 13th birthday, which triggered his passion for photography. And that kind of like stayed throughout his life. When he was 16, he sold a photograph of a newspaper vendor uh, mourning the death of the FDR to Look magazine, soon became a staff photographer on the magazine and then left to, to make films. Uh, made a number of short films. The most famous one is Day of the Fight, which I've seen. It's really, really interesting, 15 minutes short documentary about the boxer Walter Cartier but he soon soon started making features and self-financed his first feature in 1953 which is Fear and Desire um, now I've only seen a very badly deteriorated copy of this film uh, it, in nice symmetry it's, it was the last film of Kubrick's that I watched to complete the cycle after the first one was also a badly deteriorated black and white copy of the film that I shouldn't have been watching um, but it's not great I know Owen's seen it as well um, there's a few shots in there, isn't there, Owen, where you think, oh, hang on, this is a director of some kind of style. But overall... Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, oh, yeah, overall, it's a pretty poor film. I mean, mm. I, I was um, not so much disappointed in it because I kind of expected it to be quite bad anyway, knowing that it's the film he tried to destroy and erase from history. But, um, <laughs> yeah, there are, there are the odd bit in there where you think... Um, yeah, that's the Kubrick style. That's he's sort of developing his own method from 
from quite an early stage, but yeah, it's a pretty. Cool and film. talking about war as well, you know, looking at the, yeah, uh, yeah. the abstract of war and things like that. Um, two years later, he went on to make Killer's Kiss, which is a film noir about a washed-up boxer, a taxi dancer. I didn't realise taxi dancers were a thing. I had to look that up. Um, it's you used to be able to just pay people like by the minute to dance with you in clubs. Bizarre. Um, oh, like, like on the street, like you. Stuck yeah, no, no, no. It was in clubs. It was, <laughs> like, all, it was it's like kind of like strip clubs, but with clothes on. What's the point in that? Um, no, exactly. <laughs> and that's why this film didn't work, Steve. Um, uh, yeah, and she is the object of some unwanted affection from a gangster. Uh, again, made it for peanuts. He was on welfare himself at the time. And again, it's it's another interesting work in that it's not great. It's better, a lot better than Fear and Desire. Um, it's got use of voiceover, which would become a very common theme in a lot of his films. And it has got some brilliant use of lights. It was quite interesting. He sacked the sound recorders from this film. He planned to record all the sound on location, but the sound recorders boom mic kept getting in the way with his lights. He decided he'd rather keep his lighting uh, than the sound, and all the sound was dubbed in in, in post. Um, it was also the last film that Kubrick made which wasn't based on an already existing source, and for the rest of his career, he would adapt existing stories. Um, in 1956, uh, Killer's Kiss hadn't been a huge commercial success, but it did bring Kubrick to the attention of the industry, followed up in 56 with his first hit film, which is The Killing, uh, I think symptomatic of Kubrick himself. The Killing is a heist film about a man who plans an audacious robbery with perfect precision, only to have random factors intervene and leave him struggling to stop his entire life <clears throat> unravelling. Now, Owen, I know you've seen The Killing. Um, what did you think of it? Uh, no, I really like it. I think it's um, one of the best sort of noir films that I've seen, actually. Uh, but it's, again, I mean, it is the same sort of thing with... It's the lighting that stands out for me in The Killing, rather than the sort of heist, uh, yeah, the heist story to it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it sounds. I don't like to talk about the technical stuff of films very much because uh, basically I'm, I'm not very knowledgeable in it. <laughs> but it <laughs> is honest of you. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it, it, in all of Kubrick's films, it's the lighting that, that makes them. I think, um, yeah. particularly in the killing, where you've just got like a little table that's lit and everything around it is shadows. We have yeah. people walking through, like particularly because it's in black and white. I think that makes it all. Um, these various shades of grey and it just looks really, really impressive. Yeah, yeah, and there's some interesting tracking shots as well and mm. um, and again it, it playing around with narrative instruction and the fact that the, the narrator himself is an unreliable narrator was, is, an, is an interesting yeah. it, very interesting use of that, that idea. Um, the next year though is I think 57 Kubrick made his first truly great film uh, which is Paths of Glory. Steven Spielberg said it's his favourite film. Uh, David Simon said it was a major influence on him while he was creating The Wire. Uh, it's an anti-war film about a suicidal charge from the French trenches in the First World War and the subsequent court-martial for cowardice faced by an apparently randomly selected group of soldiers, essentially to cover up the incompetence of the officers involved in the order. Uh, I think this is the first of our films that we're going to talk about tonight where all of us have seen it. So, Jerry, your, your thoughts on Paths of Glory? Oh, it's a magnificent film. The only way to describe it is it's just magnificent from start to finish. It's just brilliantly done. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a magnificent film. Absolutely magnificent. Like, from start to finish, you just... It's, it's just brilliant. Um, I think he owes a lot to Kirk Douglas 
Mm-hmm. So I think the acting is brilliant. I think, um, you know, James, you were saying about the speech. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's. It, it, I think if I'd seen this film before we did the triple bill on greatest movie speeches, it would have been one of my entries. It's it's a, a wonderful indictment of, and it, it's what um, David Simon was talking about when he created the wire. The kind of the middle management of something like war uh, and how uh, the responsibility is just passed down, the buck is passed down and down to the lowest common soldier type thing. It's a, it's a very, very interesting uh, denouncement of war. Um, and it's also based on a real case. Uh, it's a fictionalised account of a real case, but cases like this, actually, they were rare, but they did happen in the, uh, the French infantry during the First World War. And that actually make knowing that fact while I was watching it, it just made me even angrier, to be honest. Uh, and that it's, is part of the film's power, I think. There's, there's some irony in the French army having a trial for cowardice. <laughs> Somebody had to say it well then, Steve. <laughs> but did you watch this today, did you, Steve? Yeah. What did you think? I thought it was great. It was a yeah. Yeah, great acting performances, really, you know, took took the film to to its peak but it was a, yeah. you know it's a it's a good story it shot well um yeah it's it's just a fantastic film all round and talking about you know we've been talking about kubrick reference and the fact is kubrick is one of the most referenced directors in pop culture um and the courtroom scene there is a really really good homage to it in black adder goes forth and in fact i think a lot of black adder goes forth that entire series is uh, owes a huge debt to Paths of Glory, um, and and I don't I, I'd imagine that Kubrick would have been would have been quite pleased with that because he did have a very kind of black, bleak sense of humour at times. The other interesting thing about Paths of Glory is the woman who comes out at the end to sing for the soldiers in that beautiful moment. Mm. Bit became the woman that Stanley Kubrick married and spent the rest of his life with her, uh, and I think that's that's quite a nice little. Uh, Clash of real life and film life there, and um, yeah, nepotism, James. We call that nepotism. He married her after, but <laughs> he met her on set. He met her on set, and I think that's a nice story. Like, I was obliged to point out that he divorced his second wife to marry this girl. Yeah, but then so he did spend he did spend forty years with her, so it, it wasn't just a fling. So I'll, I'll give, and he had two children with her, and they all lived happily together. You don't get it right first time all the time. You can't all be like me, people. That's what I'm saying. Um, then Path of Glory took Kubrick to uh, Spartacus in 1960. In fact, it was Kirk Douglas who got Spartacus's um, first uh, director fired and insisted that the studio hire Stanley Kubrick, uh, who he'd worked. Now, I haven't seen Spartacus for a very long time. Um, has anyone seen it quite recently? Uh, I saw it in February last year. Okay, so how does it compare to the rest of Kubrick's body of work, considering the fact that Kubrick himself said this was the one film where he didn't feel like he had uh, control over it? Yeah, I mean, basically, it's Kirk Douglas's film rather than Mm -hmm. Stanley Kubrick's. I think he, although it's, um, you know, I think it's quite well known Kubrick and Kirk Douglas sort of, had a bit of a falling out whilst making this, and I think they vowed to not work with each other again afterwards. Um, (laughs) But it's... um, I mean, I'm not a massive fan of these epic films anyway, you know, like Ben-Hur and... It's it's probably not his... 
it would probably rank quite lowly for me, mm-hmm. partly because it doesn't really seem like um, a Kubrick film. We know we mentioned sort of um, uh, the killing, which mm-hmm. is it is very Kubrick. Essentially, it's very Kubrick in its its style and its look and the way it's it's filmed and it's, the speeches, everything like that. Spartacus isn't it just. It's an, I mean, it's a, it's a good epic film, but mm. it's not really my cup of tea. Um, yeah, it's one of the only films where he was literally just a director on it. He had nothing yeah. to do with the script. He wasn't producing. He didn't have any extra. He, he It was like he'd come in to do a job, um, mm. and I think he, he didn't like that experience. Although it did mean that the success of Spartacus, it was nominated for a huge amount of Oscars, um, meant that he could then do what he wanted to do, and it was that stepping stone. The the next one he decided to make was actually um, Vladimir Nabokov's uh, highly controversial book, Lolita. Kubrick moved to England in 1962 to make it. He wrote the co-wrote the screenplay uh, with Nabokov, and he toned down some of the more sexually charged elements of the, the book, um, the story about Humbert Humbert, the professor who falls in love with a 14-year-old daughter of his landlady. So even just saying that sentence, especially in this current climate, just makes you think, whoa, hang on, that's, yeah, that's a tricky subject to be doing a film about. And he did it in the early 1960s. I think film author Adrian Turner describes it as an epic comedy of frustration rather mm. than lust. Um, and he does tone down a lot of the more sexually charged elements of it. Um, and it's, had, it's quite a bleak film. Uh, wouldn't, wouldn't you agree, Owen? Oh, definitely. I yeah. mean, it, 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 it's hard to kind of pinpoint it into one category because is it a mm. kind of dark comedy mm. or is it some kind of psychological thriller of a film? You know, it's it's you can't really pin it down. And yeah. um, I think that's part of its genius almost. Yes. Um, you know, but you've got people in like Peter Sellers, who mm. is normally associated with sort of comedic performances, yeah. and he does steal every scene he's in in this yeah. film, and he is a great on-screen character. But it doesn't really, it kind of doesn't fit with the, the rest of the film style because mm. where it's it's kind of so dark that it is comedy. Yeah, um, doesn't. I mean, it's just such an odd film. Um, yeah. I'm still unsure whether I like it or not. <laughs> um, I, I can appreciate how how well made it is, yeah. and I think it's a really interesting um, type of film. But whether whether I can say that I I like it or I loved it, uh, it's yeah, it's very very weird film. Yeah, um, and y- you mentioned Peter Sellers there, and uh, that it was the perfect bridge to his next film, nineteen sixty four. Doctor Strangelove, uh, yeah, after the success of their first collaboration, Kubrick and Sellers reteamed uh, to film an adaptation of the factual novel Red Alert, which was about the potential for nuclear catastrophe between the two superpowers in the height of the Cold War. Kubrick kept trying to work out how to play the story straight, and it just it just wouldn't work straight, and um, he felt the only way the story made sense is if he played it as a completely black comedy. He said this doesn't... It, if he tried to play it straight, it didn't seem believable. Um, uh, and all the salient points he wanted to be, make could be made better uh, through the use of comedy. Um, Sellers was seen commercially as one of the highlights of Lolita. And apparently the studio would only finance Dr. Strangelove if he was given a minimum of four roles in the film or something like that. Um, how much he got paid for it as well. Yeah, fi- yeah he, he got paid over half the entire budget of the film. <laughs> um, but... 
you kind of think it's worth it, actually, <laughs> to be fair. Sellers is fantastic in this, in, in all three roles. It's, it's really interesting. Kubrick himself admitted he didn't actually direct Sellers. He just kept at least three cameras on him at all times so as not to miss anything. Because I think Peter Sellers was at the height of his comic alchemy at mm. the time. Um, and he plays um, the, the British uh, RAF commander, uh, the American president, and, of course, Dr. Strangelove, the, the former... Nazi scientist um, turned American uh, scientist. It's it is an incredibly funny film. I've, I've literally just finished watching it again, and some of the lines are absolutely fantastic, and some brilliant um, performances from the supporting cast as well, especially George C. Scott uh, as the general who is really suspicious. Uh, of the uh, of inv- of inviting the Russians into the war rooms, so they're going to see the big board. He keeps going on about <laughs> them seeing the big, but they're going to see the board. Um, um, yeah, um, Steve, you watched this today as well, didn't you? I've been very busy today. Yes, yeah. been. you've done a lot of homework. I'm very proud yeah. of you. What, what did you think of Doctor Strange? Love? Excellent again. Um, a kind of big because it wasn't. I didn't think it was an out-and-out comedy, but there was obviously a lot of funny parts in it. Mm. There's a lot of... I kind of felt like I'd seen the film already, though, through it being referenced in so many yeah. other any other programmes, which goes which goes for many Kubrick films, it, which we spoke about really before does, we actually it? started yeah. recording. There's a lot of them that if you... A lot of references, and especially things like The Simpsons, start making sense once you watch the Stanley Kubrick film for the first time. Mm. You think, I get that now. Yeah, I finally understand what that joke was. But no, the film was the film was brilliant. I did think it ended a bit abruptly, though. I don't know if that's just yes. me, but it just sort of ended out of nowhere. I mean, obviously, it had gone on for the hour and a half that it was due to go on for, <laughs> but it just kind of it just kind of stopped, and it was like, yes. all right, that's well, it now. You, you could argue, I suppose, that is uh, that's symbolic of of how a a nuclear attack would go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that that scene of of uh, the pilot falling to earth on a bomb um still absolutely ludicrous but at the same time absolutely perfect for that film jerry um your thoughts on strange love i'm big big strange love fan mm. uh, i think it's fantastic um it's a bit like Pass of glory as well it's quite a brave film to make at the time very very brave at the time yes because i mean with Pass of glory it wasn't. I don't think it was the dumb thing there to sort of criticise the military and and sort of expose the hypocrisy kind of within the sort of the senior ranks of the army mm. as he does. So he, he's already done that kind of thing. But this blows it out of the water completely. I mean, this is just. It looks. It's, I think it's it's funny funnier to us now because he's got so much of it so spot on. Yes. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it really does just nail all the stupidity and hypocrisy of the Cold War right in the middle of it, but sort of in the early stages of it as well. Yeah, and it's really interesting because apparently the scene where Peter Sellers is the RAF guy is trying to get through to the president and he hasn't got change That's to just use up. brilliant as well. Yeah, and apparently the US government actually changed a lot of their protocols because they saw that and thought, hang on, that might happen. And so again, you just think... <laughs> That's really scary. Um, and also, Did you hear the stuff about the, the B-52? Yeah, the, uh, it was on this brilliant document. I'll let you explain, Jerry, but I was watching um, Stanley Kubrick, A Life in Pictures, which is a fantastic documentary if anyone can get a chance to watch it. But yeah, no, go ahead, Jerry. Yeah, I was doing some reading around Kubrick, and we've all been doing homework, but yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and, and 
I I hadn't realised at the time the B fifty two was really sort of that was in use and it was top notch bomber. You know what I mean? That was that was that was the the main technological advance. So they wouldn't clear anyone to look at it because it was actively used. The, the American government refused to give them any support, refused to tell them anything. So what they had to do is there was there was a, a picture appeared in a some British like flying enthusiast magazine. And the set designers made the entire cockpit based on this one picture. And then apparently, like, they got some Air Force pilots in to have a look at it and tell them if there was anything, you know, that was glaringly obvious. And they were like, oh, no, it's perfect. So Kubrick thought that um, the design team had, had, like, been, like, sneaking in and were, they were going to get all get done by the FBI and they, they, were, they were all going to get their heads smashed in for, for sort of illegally finding out how a B-52 looks. It's just yeah. crazy. yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, th- I, I do. I, Doctor Strangelove is one of my favourite films of, of Kubrick's, and it is. I think it's the the one time where he really balanced um, pitch black comedy and absolute terror at the same time. I, I can't imagine being an audience member watching that at the time, thinking, "Shit, this could happen." <laughs> it, it makes it so obvious that actually all this could happen, uh, and you know considering that the audience at the time were living in constant fear of a potential nuclear attack, that's it's an incredible film to have made at that time. I suppose time. It, it kind of really emphasised how easy it could have happened during the Cold War. You just needed one, mm. one renegade person in a position of relative power to kind of get it all going. Yeah, and apparently the character of Ripper, um, who interestingly is played by Sterling Hayden from... The Killing, uh, and it was his first film that he'd done since The Killing. Um, apparently he's based, despite the fact that there's a warning right at the beginning saying none of this is based on fact and none of it's based on real people, he's actually based on a US general who was very much into the idea of how much they could provoke the Russians into an attack. But usually, um, usually when there's that kind of warning at the beginning, you know full yeah. well that there is somebody who's based on yeah. somebody real in there. Exactly, and in this instance, yeah, it, it definitely was like that as well. Which is, and and there are a number of kind of real life Doctor Strange loves as well, but probably not quite as manic. Um, but this was this was originally a serious sort of thriller, yeah. as well. Yeah, exactly. And and Kubrick tried to do it that way, and he did it as a, when he did it as a comedy. His producer said, "I can't go with you on that. You're going to ruin your career." But if you do this as a comedy, you're going to ruin your career. And and he himself has admitted, actually, no, it's one of my favourite Kubrick films of all time. Um, Stanley knew what he was doing there. It's it's genius. One of my favourite things as well is towards the end, during Strange Love's last kind of big speech towards the end, it cuts a lot. It, it, you know, the camera doesn't just stick on him as he does his speech. And the reason it cuts a lot is because all the cast around him just kept cracking up with laughter. And... <laughs> the cuts are literally the only usable footage they could get because Peter Sellers just kept everyone cracking up on set, which, uh, again, is just it's fantastic to hear, especially when you hear stories later on of how much of a nightmare it was on a Kubrick set. And quite often, listening to the actors, they tell a very, very different story. Um, so from Strangelove on to 1968... Um, oh, before we do that, James. Oh, yes. I think me and Steve need to just mark uh, a little bit of appreciation for the fact that this was uh, James L. Jones's movie debut. Yes. Yeah. Did you the, know it's him, Steve? The voice of Darth Vader, yeah. 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 So, he... more reasons to be thankful. 
Yeah, yeah. exactly. Launch that man's career. That's yeah, or else, nice or else we could have had a Darth Vader with a with a Somerset accent, and it really it's, wouldn't it have been as menacing, would it? No, wouldn't have been the same. Yeah. <laughs> As you haven't heard what the actual onset Darth Vader voice was, by the way. I've I've heard it. It's you know. Yeah. Uh, oh, fine. YouTube. The force. Yeah. The force is strong with you, my lover. <laughs> it's, just... it's the least sinister thing you've ever heard. Yeah. It's like someone. It's like a drunk guy at a West Country wedding is taking the mick out of Darth Vader and trying to yeah, just. Yeah, it, it genuinely is. Yes, it's amazing. <laughs> um, so yeah. So luckily, Stanley Kubrick did a big favour for sci-fi there. He did an even bigger one, although I know at least one person in this pod who might disagree. In 1968, Kubrick's next project would literally change the face of film forever. Not my words, Lynn, the words of Steven Spielberg. <laughs> Kubrick's collaboration with uh, Arthur C. Clarke in adapting his short story, The Sentinel, uh, it won Kubrick his only Oscar for visual effects, which yeah, it just seems so... I can't, I can't, I'm still angry at the fact that this man received that one single Oscar. Um, I think he was angry as well because he didn't even bother to go and get it, did he? Yeah, exactly. Um, this is his most divisive film, I think. Uh, critics and audiences at the time were completely at odds on whether it was um, a genius piece of cinema or pretentious waffle going on for too long. I remember the heated discussion we had on the pod when Steve didn't give it the best review in the world. Um... So, yeah, Steve, I'll let you open the case for the prosecution but first. I didn't think it was pretentious waffle. I just didn't get on with it. I just watched it <laughs> and didn't and didn't enjoy it. I found it dragged on. It was a it was mm. a bit boring for many for most parts of it. But I didn't think it was pretentious. I can oh, see okay. I can see why it's so highly thought of, and I can see why so many people like it. I just didn't. Yeah, I, and I can see why people don't like it. Um, but I, I I just I'd hate to be in a world where I didn't. Love 2001. Um, Owen, I know you're a big fan. Oh yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's my favourite <laughs> Kubrick film. Actually, mm. it's it, it, it's just incredible. The first time, I, the first time I saw it, um, I watched it in HD on the TV, and I just thought this is absolutely fantastic. I even even though you get stuff in it that's. You know, you don't get in films anymore. You've got the interval bit in the middle. Yeah, I love you've that. You've just got a bit... <laughs> just, yeah, just leave the intermission. I noticed that was also in Barry Lyndon as well, on the <laughs> print of Barry I love the fact that they've just left intermissions in there. That's fantastic. Brilliant. But, you know, then I, the next time I watched it was just in bed on my own with a little... Um, my screen on my phone watching the, the film. And it just... Even in that tiny little screen, in, like, over, the, you know, the course of an evening... It still just blew me away, and I think it's um, testament to just how fantastic a film it is. Mm. Jerry. Oh, yeah, I'm with Owen. I haven't watched it on a phone screen. Like, <laughs> but I, I imagine it's powerful enough to sort of transcend whether it's on a massive cinema screen or on a tiny little screen. It's just fantastic. Yeah, and what I love is, as well, this is the first time, really, um, although he did it, with strange love, but his use of music, um, the, the combining of images and music. And it's, I, I was listening to a, a Kubrick best of CD earlier, the, the music in a Kubrick film, and um, it made me think he, he did decades before, but with classical music, basically what Tarantino has done um, in the last 15 years. He just finds music, um, that some of it famous, some of it not so famous. 
and just gives it an entirely new context. And he kind of makes bits of music. He he gives them a new a second life um, by combining them with his images. And you you think of uh, the fact is loads of the music he uses now is completely in our head. Also, Sprach Zarathustra, um, the Blue Danube, both of those bits in they're massively famous bits of music, but we know them because. They were used in 2001: Space Odyssey, um, and I, I find that really. And they were used beautifully there as well. And it, I, I believe, he had them in there just as test bits of music, just as a test score, um, with the idea to actually create an original score for 2001. And then he was just, no, it works without it. But I'll, I'll just use this music that I've, I've put in there, and it's, it. I, I do love the use of music. Um, the other thing as well that made me laugh when I was reading reading up on this, apparently that same year, Planet of the Apes received a special Oscar, um, which had been given to them for their work on makeup. And it was kind of like, oh, let's, let's acknowledge the work that Planet of the Apes did to make these incredibly lifelike ape people. And apparently one of the, the production team, uh, the president of the Oscars that night said what the hell did they think we used, real ape men? And they got really angry at the fact that Planet of the Apes had got this special award, and they were like, did you not see the apes at the beginning of 2001? Um, and Interesting fact about that, by the way, is that Ronnie Corbett was used as the makeup model for the chimps, I think. <laughs> no way. Yeah, he never appears in the film, like, but, um... Wow. <laughs> when they were modelling the sort of, the chimp yeah. costumes, and they were trying to get the makeup right, they used Ronnie Corbett. That's amazing. How Makeup model. There how, you go. How does he get that gig? How do you get... <laughs> I have no idea. It was Absolutely all filmed right. at uh, uh, Elstree, wasn't it? So that's... You know, Elstree, um, there, but he probably was filming the two Ronnies next door and just bumped into Kubrick. Imagine that dinner party. <laughs> Um, and, and I have to say, one of my favourite bits is just the fact that the very last words in the film, which occur about 40 minutes before the end, and it's, again, so brave just to have pretty much 40 minutes of very ambiguous, dialogue-free film towards the end of the film. But, it, yeah, I love the fact that it says its origin and purpose still a total mystery, and they're the last words spoken in that film, and I love the fact that you could basically just say that about the film itself. Uh, yeah, it's hugely, hugely divisive. Um, af- after after that, Kubrick planned to do a Napoleon biopic, fell through, um, and so he needed something quick and cheap to make, and he settled upon an adaptation of Anthony Burgess's A Clockwork Orange, which is the story of gang leader Alex and his enforced semi-lobotomy for violent crimes against the state. Huge box office success for Warner Brothers. Uh, at one point, it was their second highest grossing film of all time. But copycat crimes reported in the UK press, and let's be honest, no one really knows how much crime was actually inspired by the film, if the UK tabloids are anything to go by. But um, Kubrick received death threats and persuaded the studio to pull the film from the UK, and it wasn't officially available until after his, his death in 1999. So, uh, a clockwork orange, I'm going to go to you first, Jerry. Um, yeah, it was a, considering that 2001 probably was a bit divisive. Mm. This is not the safe bet you would go for after doing that, is it? <laughs> um, I, I mean, I've spoken about this before because I only watched it like last year. Mm. And it's a good film. I don't think it's outstanding or one of the best ever, but it's a very good film. 
Um, I think, but I think my favourite bit about it is the fact that he improvised the um, singing of the rain bit. That's mm. that's the thing that sticks in my head is that he, he that wasn't scripted. Yeah. When you think how many revisions Kubrick made to scripts. But but at the same time, he did allow his actors to improvise when he trusted them. Because you had obviously Peter Sellers got to improvise loads of uh, Doctor Strange. But The Shining, here's Johnny, is also an improvised line, which Jack exactly. Nicholson came. So and and again, it just says. It, it seems to me he had a great relationship with actors, which goes against a lot of the rumours um, that you heard about him being a terrible, difficult director to work with. It well, seems... he's often... I mean, he often described himself as being a photographer first. Didn't yeah. He? I mean, that was what he always... What he was kind of known mm. for, I guess, yeah. is that he, 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 could, he could shoot brilliantly, um, you know, fantastic-looking mm. pictures, but he wasn't an actor, so he didn't yeah. direct the actors. He just let them do their own thing. I think yeah. you've said as much before on a previous podcast, haven't you? Yes, I, th- I think so. Yeah, he, he did cast brilliant actors and that helped. Um, uh, but the actors seemed to genuinely get on with him as well. He was effectively pushed them hard. Um, he would push them hard. But ultimately, I think they respected that he was he was being a perfectionist rather than just a contrary old mm. bastard. He strikes me as like the Alex Ferguson of filmmaking. Do you know what I mean? Mm. He's a bit of a shit but they respect him. And because work because of the results, yeah, yeah, exactly. And what it does for them as well. And he I, might not be the most likeable man, mm. but there's times when he's likeable enough. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it, it seems results. offset he was an absolute lovely bloke. He seemed to, mm. you know... Um, uh, the other thing I get... Because Clockwork Orange is prob- is my favourite Kubrick film. It's one of my favourite films of all time. Um, but I just can't get past the irony of the fact that Kubrick received death threats from people who thought that he was inspiring violence with his films. Uh, just the, the sheer stupidity of that yeah. action um, sums up just why I think maybe the world didn't deserve Clockwork Orange at that time. Um, it, it's a real shame. But again, Clockwork Orange, another, like you say, brave brave choice. Uh, Burgess wasn't particularly happy with it either, was he? No, because... Um, well, Kubrick had read the American version of the book, which missed out the last chapter. Um, so the film is different from the book simply because the American print of the book missed out the very end of it. Um, but I understand Burgess kind of came around to that a little bit, but there, there was definitely some friction there as well. Mm. Also, I'll tell you what I didn't realise when I watched it as well. I only found out when I was researching this. Did you know Warren Clark is dim? Yes, yeah. Wow, that, that really shocked me. <laughs> <laughs> There's a few... and I, I, Again, I keep forgetting, Leonard Rossiter yeah. um, in 2001 and again in Barry Lyndon. Um, there, there's, again, because Kubrick set up camp in England, you do find a few of these English actors kind of... There's a very British in. feeling to a lot of his work, I think. I, I definitely think so. I think he enjoyed living in this country. Um, and... I th- well, you get the feeling of a disconnect in his work. He He's making films in an alien environment, and I think that probably helps. Um, and kind of going on to Barry Lyndon, 1975, um, it's interesting, I was watching a Martin Scorsese interview, and he said there was always an expectation with a Kubrick film. He was always under more pressure from his peers to deliver something special and original. And so when Kubrick announced he was adapting the 19th century William Makepeace Thackeray novel, The Luck of Barry Lyndon, Scorsese says they were looking... Uh, they were expecting him to take period drama somewhere new, and in Scorsese's <laughs> words, and where he took it was the past. And it's, I only watched Barry Lyndon for the first time a few days ago. 
and it's an utterly, utterly beautiful film. I think it's the most beautifully shot of all of Kubrick's films. And it's because every scene looks like a watercolour. Um, Owen, you, you, you basically the person who told me to watch this film anyway. You, you came highly recommended from you. What would you say about Barry Lyndon? Well, exactly what you said. I mean, every scene, it's, it's either like he's just took a single picture each time and then made a flick book of it, you know? Mm. Each bit is, it's a very precise film. Mm. All of it is very precise. Like he uses, um, it, also the film he uses just natural light. Yeah. So you get some scenes where, you know, it's a really stony building, a really old looking building, and all you've got is the sort of sun beaming through these, these windows and you've got the dust that's been sort of reflected through that and it just absolutely looks fantastic you're yeah. right it's probably the, it probably looks the best of all his films and, and i say that as the person who rates the the, the look of of uh, 2001 very yeah. highly yeah um, it's because he accumulates this huge stock of expensively expensive zeiss lenses that are meant to be mm-hmm. put in satellite telescopes and again there's this story uh, this story on this documentary where they're saying um Someone at the company was going, where have all these... We need some of these lenses. No, oh, we, no we've sold them all off. He bought up the world's stock of these lenses <laughs> and, everyone, and and he just made his own cameras. And it was so he could shoot in candlelight. And it's incredible. And you think, when you've seen a, you know behind the scenes of a film set, how many huge lights and everything, he was just filming with candlelight and it looks incredible. And I love that in some of the scenes, the actors just... He gets the actors to just pause for a second before like going on with the scene so it is like you've just you're presented with a tableau that's coming mm. to life and he come he starts off quite zoomed in and then just slowly zooms out to show you the whole picture it's an incredible it's it's very episodic and i think in lesser hands it would have been far better as a mini series but i think kubrick just about gets away with it because it just looks so incredible the entire time is this the one he got on the ira hit list for oh i don't know i've not heard that it's, it's like Irish. Well, it's Irish. Yeah, it, yeah, it's yeah. got an Irish character in it. Um, and it's about... There's a little bit about British rule. I, I, having seen it, I wouldn't have thought there was anything hugely contentious, but then again, no, I'm think... quite ignorant of the struggle, so... Has it, has it got... It's, it's, uh, there was a film. Mm. I, I did my homework, honest. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> where they were filming in Ireland. Right, yes. They did they film... English soldiers. Yes. <clears> they <throat> arranged and take family to it and put him on a hit list, so he, they moved oh. the film in. I think it was this film. Okay. That that would make sense because they did yeah. film bits of it in Ireland and there were British soldiers, one of them played by Leonard Rossiter. Um, yeah, oh, that's really interesting. I didn't know about that. Yeah, I, mean, so I think what, one of the things about uh, Barry Lyndon, which it kind of brings true if you know that the, one of the other reputations Kubrick had, we've talked about quite a few of them, is that he makes quite emotionally cold films. Yes. So he makes a lot of films where people feel disconnected from the characters and it doesn't feel like they're they're very human. I think that's... It, I mean, it can sound like quite a harsh criticism mm. to, to kind of generalise in that way. And in some cases, it might be quite true. But what he does is it's a very analytical portrayal of people, I think. Yeah. So you're not supposed to kind of connect to them in a, um, you know, in a very emotional way. You're just meant to be an observer. Yeah. And I think this is probably, it, it, it epitomises that style of filmmaking that he has. You, you do view these people as characters in a story. Mm. Um, and I think it's it's one of its strengths. I think as well, Barry Lyndon's kind of like the film that, 
other filmmakers recognise as his best film. Yes, you know? yeah. You sort of mentioned, like, Scorsese. Scorsese came... says it's his favourite film, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it came out quite highly in the Sight and Sound poll as well. Yeah, and even higher in the director's one. I think I yeah. noticed it was, like, in the top 20 for the director's poll and it was about 59th for the critics' poll. So, yeah, it is one that directors absolutely adore and I can see why because it is all about the framing. It's all about mm. the look of the film. Yeah, I mean, it's... um very sort of innovative yeah. so yeah but i mean it's yeah it's a fantastic film it, even aside for me going you know it's it's quite a good a well made film it's you know very technically accomplished and all that it, it's still at the heart of it a very good film so you don't have to be like a film snob to enjoy no um so yeah um poor box office performance uh and mixed reviews for barry linden meant that Kubrick kind of needed to return to commercial success, and he did so with an adaptation of Stephen King's The Shining, stars Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall. Uh, the Shining is now an established horror classic, telling the story of a hotel caretaker driven mad by the spirits that inhabit the Overlook Hotel complex that he's managing through the winter while he tries to finish his book. Um, Owen, I'd say you're our resident horror expert, so why don't you kick us off with The Shining? Uh, okay, yeah. I mean, like I said, the first time I saw it, I was about 15, and I didn't really like it. I think what I wanted was kind of um, a typical horror film, and that isn't really what The Shining is. No. I mean, it, it's Kubrick was a master at just turning his hand to any kind of genre, really. I mean, he, he sort of showed it, he could do comedy with uh, Doctor Strangelove. I think this was his attempt to do a horror-type film. Yeah. Um... But, it, I mean, it, it is fantastic. It wasn't until I watched it again a couple of times and, you know, it's one of those films that kind of grew on me. I guess most of his films, when you rewatch them, they grow on you a bit yeah. more. Um, but particularly, uh, I found The Shining that did that. It, I mean, it, don't get me wrong, it does get quite scary at times. Mm-hmm. Um, there's scenes in there with, um, you know, there's the bathtub, you know, and the, the lady in the bathtub. Yeah. Trying, trying, yeah, exactly. It still kind of sends shivers down your spine, and and the you know the obvious what choice would be the lift, I guess. Mm. You know, with all the blood that comes just flooding out of it. Yeah, um, it's got very memorable moments in it, and I think kind of what strings them all together is Jack Nicholson's performance. Really, yeah, he's just fantastic. I think I keep using that word for every one of his films, but it's true. I mean, he's just sort of fantastic. Yeah. Um, but as well, I, I, it's uh, interesting that uh, Stephen King hated this film, I think. Yeah. Considering it's based on his book and he decided to remake his own version. Yeah. Later that was awful. <laughs> yeah, Kubrick changed a lot of the original novel, didn't he? There, there, there is that. He he liked the idea. And I love the fact that he said it was it was a hopeful story. Um, Kubrick said he was talking to Stephen King about it he said he felt that Stephen King's story was a hopeful story and Stephen King was like what What are you talking about <laughs> and he said well just the fact that there's something after we die isn't that hopeful And it's a really interesting insight into the way that Kubrick saw the, the, the story was the fact that he thought ghosts were potentially a positive thing um, Did, if you watch I mean I watched this for the first time the other day mm-hmm. um and then on the DVD, there was an extra. It's like the making of The Shining. That's like filmed by Kubrick's wife. It's his daughter. It's his daughter. It's the daughter. Yeah, yeah. And Nicholson, uh, he's on there, and he says, "Like I literally, I don't even learn the script anymore. I just wait till they give me the new one for the day." 
Yeah. Because they rewrote the script so often that he didn't bother to learn it. Yeah. It just typed him up a new copy every day because it changed yeah. so much. Yeah. And, and uh, But he also said that uh, in later interviews, he said that kind of helped him being character. He wasn't worrying about the script. He was just thinking about his character then. It helped him develop his character. Um, a fantastic thing in the, the sort of the bedroom scene where he's trying to hack into the, the bathroom. Yeah. With the axe, you know, everyone knows. I mean, even not having seen it, you know that scene. Um, and that, that was one of the things where it, it felt very familiar, even though I've not seen it, because it is so referenced. Yeah. And it's oh, so well done. Yeah. Um, but the, on that little documentary, there's a really interesting bit, actually, just before, as, they, as they're getting set up to start filming that, that scene, probably for the 50th time. But Nicholson's like, he's going mental. Mm. And he's like, he's psyching himself, he's basically psyching himself up and getting into the character of being a raging lunatic. Yeah, but it's really interesting watching him try and work himself up into this frenzy to do it. Yeah, and it's fascinating. Yeah, and it's really it's a really interesting thing, just in general, you know, not specific to this film, but just the acting process. I mean, it, it was fantastic, and then he obviously improvises the line. Yeah, which is amazing. <laughs> um, um, the other thing, one of the other bits of trivia I only found out quite recently, didn't know that at the time. Um, the bit where Shelley Duvall um, discovers that he's just been writing or working no play makes Jack a doll boy. Um, and she goes through pages and pages and pages. But they were they were all hand-typed by uh, Kubrick's assistant. But the best thing is, for foreign markets, he made... He filmed <laughs> separate shots with it in different languages rather than just have it subtitled at the bottom in every single major market. So in German, it was all Jack, all work and no play, makes Jack and Old Boy in German, typed that many times as well. Apparently it took his assistant six weeks, just spent six weeks typing those bits of paper. You'd hate filming. him, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> he, he, he got a strange loyalty from them. Um, he, he pushed them hard but and made them do weird things, but at the same time, he rewarded I'd, them. I'd, um... I'd want a bloody good pay rise if I, that was my job. <laughs> That's the only reward I'd be interested in. Um, uh, one of my favourite things about The Shining is the fact that Room 237 came out recently, which is a documentary I've spoken about on the podcast before. I won't go too much into that. But um, if you get a chance to watch it, 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 A, it gives you a nice insight into how The Shining was made. And about half of it is insight into how Kubrick worked and how The Shining was made. The other half is just absolute batshit crazy conspiracy stories about how he faked the moon landing. He, he was apparently the one who filmed the moon landing, wasn't he? The yeah. Apollo 11 moon yeah, landing. He and he was trying to... projection, apparently. Yeah, and he was um, trying to hint at it all the way through The Shining because the, the little boy had an Apollo rocket on his jumper and everything. That's it. That's yeah. just one of them as well. Yeah. It, it's such a fantastic... I really enjoyed it as a documentary in terms of um, you don't go in expecting a serious examination of the work of Kubrick, and I think you'd enjoy that. Um, then a few years, actually seven years later, Kubrick released his final war film, uh, Full Metal Jacket. His longtime assistant, Jan Harlan, uh, no, I don't think that's the assistant that typed up all the notes, but um, he was kind of a shooting assistant. He said that unlike Paths of Glory, Kubrick was drawn to the source book, The Short Timers, because it wasn't anti-war, it wasn't pro-war, it was literally just an account of how how things are. And it's very much a film of two halves, Full Metal Jacket. Um, Steve, what what were your thoughts on Full Metal Jacket when um, you saw it? I haven't seen it for a long time, but it was mm-hmm. just like that iconic uh, war film. You think of, mm. if someone says name a war film, you name Full Metal Jacket. 
That's interesting, actually, because it, it got overtook. I think Plat- it took so long making it that Platoon kind of came in and stole its thunder because Platoon came out the year before. And, and I like the fact that you would name Full Metal, uh, Full Metal Jacket. Um, I mean, if you, I, if you I, ask me to name five, Full Metal Jacket and Platoon would yeah, be in there. But be in there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it is... I think it. a lot of people think of Apocalypse Now and possibly Platoon as the iconic... Um, Vietnam War films, but and I, I, I can't help thinking Full Metal Jacket kind of lives in their shadow a little bit. But maybe, maybe I'm. I, I saw it probably when I was I was probably eighteen, nineteen when I saw it, um, and it, it, it did stick with me. But it didn't feel like a war film at times. I don't. I don't know. Owen, I don't. Yeah, know. I mean, it's. It... I, th- I think it doesn't feel much like a war film because it's, you know, it's a film of two halves, mm. isn't it? The, the theme that runs through the whole thing is duality. Mm. So, you know, whether it's the good and the bad and us and them and, you know, you've got the, the first half and the second half of the film. It's the, It doesn't feel like a war film because it's kind of like um, about soldiers rather than war. Yeah. You know, it's, it's about the people who who are part of this, this conflict rather than the conflict itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know when you when you get a lot of war films, it, even I guess um, you know, Paths of Glory is a little bit more. Uh, it feels more like a war film because of yeah. the way that it's shot. Whereas this is, as I say, it's the characters that make it, and I think they're the kind of essential element, really. Um, particularly in the first half, when you've got um, Pyle and uh, the way that he's treated, it's just brutal. The whole film is brutal, yeah. and that's not because of war. It's it's brutal because of because of the way that he's treated by fellow soldiers, you know. Yeah. Um, it's um, yeah. I mean, it's 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 fantastic. I love uh, Joker as well. I think he's such a fantastic character. The way he kind of he sort of um, encaptures everything really that you want in a good guy, you know. But he's also what he's doing is. You know, he's a soldier who's there to kill people. It's, yeah. it's a bad guy thing. So, again, it kind of plays on that duality theme, which which um, is sort of highlighted by his symbol on his hat. Yeah. His helmet, you know, the peace sign and born to kill written on there. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, I mean, I, I really like Full Metal, Full Metal Jacket. I'd probably say um, it's second best film, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I came to it when I was a bit older. I think I was... Probably, I mean, probably only a, a few years ago, actually, two or three years ago, when I first saw it, um, and I've loved it ever since. Really, for for a long time, it was my favourite Kubrick film. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know, I don't know whether anyone else here how highly they rate it amongst the rest of his his um, filmography. It's probably in my kind of tier two. It's just below my very favourite ones. Jerry, how long is it since you've seen it? Oh, it's a good seven, eight years since I've seen it, but I still remember it, you know. Mm-hmm. It's memorable. I, I love the stuff about, um, I mean, the drill The drill sergeant is the iconic thing about it for me. Mm-hmm. That's the sticks in my head. And there's some really, if you ever, if you want, if you've got a few spare few minutes, read about the guy and how he got the role and things. It's just fantastic. He, he like, sent a videotape of him just, like, shouting abuse at people. Yeah. He wasn't an actor, was it? He? he was, he was no. an actual drill sergeant. Yeah. And he sent a video of him just abusing, you know, shouting insults and things, never repeated himself in like 15 minutes. Uh, <laughs> and then he like turned up and, and demanded that um, Kubrick give him the, give him the part because the other, the others weren't on, weren't up to it. 
And Kubrick said no, and he and he like shouted at him and told him to stand up when he was being spoken to. And Kubrick stood up, <laughs> <laughs> and he, and then Kubrick was like, "Oh, yeah, okay, you're you're pretty good." Was that just instinctively just stood up? So uh, there you go. He also um, he he break his arm or his wrist or something during filming. Did he? Yeah, I'm gonna rewatch this. I'm gonna watch. Apparently, in a lot of scenes, he doesn't move his left arm at all. He was like involved in a pretty major car crash, but like being him, he just like he just like walked it off or something. So, yeah, he's, he basically, oh no, I think it might have been his ribs or something. He he, he got smashed into in his car, basically, um, and just just carried on and flashed his lights until someone stopped. He's hardcore, that man. <laughs> yeah. God, yeah. Um, uh, then it took us 12 years before we got to see another Kubrick film. And it was sadly to be his last, uh, 1999, based on the 1920s Austrian novel Eyes Wide Shut and its director was a subject of fervent speculation, rumour, tabloid fantasy. And that it's kind of, I actually remember this at the time. I remember seeing a lot of the news stories at the time. I was at that age where I was just getting into film and I knew of Kubrick and I knew that this this was happening and, and people knew about this. The fact is, all people knew was that there was this secretive production and that sex and fidelity was a theme and that it starred Hollywood power couple Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. Um, and so it just added rumour. There was rumour after rumour. It still holds the world record for the longest continuous film shoot to over 400 days. Um, but insiders say this isn't because it was a troubled shoot. It's just Kubrick was given anything he wanted by Warner Brothers and all Kubrick ever wanted from them was time. Yeah, yeah, his films were relatively cheap to make, and um, all, all he demanded was that uh, he'd never wrap a shot until he was 100% satisfied. Uh, a few stars, ca- a few actors came and went, but um, apparently it was more out of their other commitments than you know it being a troubled shoot. After two years of making the film, he delivered a first cut to the studio along with Cruz and Kidman. Everyone was really happy with the results. Kubrick said to his assistant, "It was one of his proudest works." And within a week, he died peacefully at his home in Hertfordshire at the age of 70 years old. Eyes Wide Shut, again, is another one that I only really recently rewatched. I watched it when it, not long after it first came out, it must have been when it was first on video. And I'll be honest, I didn't get it at the time. And I think a lot of that was because of the way it was marketed and because of the prior um, preconceived ideas I brought to this film about what the film should be about. Having left it for so long, I, it's a brilliant film. I, I really, really enjoyed watching it the other night. Um, it's, again, it's wonderfully shot as ever. Brilliant what, what, performances. What's different about it, James? Because I watched it years ago. Yeah. And I didn't rate it that highly, so I'm intrigued to see what... Well, what I think part of it depends on what what you are bringing into it. Part of it could well be I am now a married man. Uh, you know, I am a married family man and... So parts of the plot hit home with me where they might not have otherwise hit home as a younger person. It's a very mature work. I don't think it is a film for younger people in the sense that it's a world which I they can, I can't imagine they can relate to. And unlike, say, his war films, actually, it's not very hugely exciting. Um so I think there's that. There's also the fact there is a lot of... Th- it's, a, it's a very hopeful film. I think it's the most hopeful of Kubrick's films as well. And, I, and I, again, I didn't see this at the time, um, but it's actually about a couple who go through hell 
and stick, you know, kind of are still together at the end of it. And that's that that's that's a hopeful feel. And and that's what I bought. Maybe I bought my life experiences to it and were was able to enjoy it more. I don't know. What do you think? Because Owen, I know you're a fan of it. Yeah, I, I love Eyes Wide Shot. Um, I think it's just a brilliant film. I think what happened to some people is, you know, as you mentioned, it's the way that it was kind of built, I guess, was, you know, this, this sort of sexy film, and it's anything but a it's, sexy it's film. It's not sexy at all, no. No, I mean, it, uh, it, 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 a lot of it is uh, involves sex and naked people, mm. you know, there's, uh, there's a mansion full of people shagging each other, basically. Mm. Um, but it's, it's very <laughs> unsexy, it's... Mm. It's it's more about desire, I guess, yeah. than it is about um, you know about lust. So it, it could have put people off, or it could have given the wrong impression. You know, I think um, I think the marketing, well, not even necessarily the the direct marketing from the studio, but the the idea of what the film was about that was put about in popular culture was it was basically a sexual erotic thriller, and yeah. it, it's really not. No, I mean I can see why it is built as as a you know an erotic thriller because basically it's an orgy you know there's yeah. an orgy going on a lot of it is around prostitutes who, and all this kind of thing so I can see why it's like that but um, yeah I mean it, it it almost made it into my triple bill as mm. one of my favourite Christmas films because <laughs> I I would have given that to you as well do you know yeah. after all of that watching it is really um, someone. And someone else has said it's it's a Christmas film for grown-ups because that the, 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 there's a reason he filmed it at Christmas. One of them is he gets to do some more fantastic natural lighting. You know, it literally every scene has got a Christmas tree lighting it up in the corner, um, apart from the stately home where the orgy takes place. Um, yeah. And, it, yeah, it, it is a great Christmas. Um, I'm, I would have actually not argued with you on that one, Owen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, I thought you didn't like it till you re- rewatched it. Oh yeah, no. I, now I argue with you. Now yeah. I argue with you. No, that's right. Um, but yeah, it's yeah, it, it, it's an interesting, and I think it is a worthy final film for Kubrick as well. I really do. Um, it, it's interesting. Christiana Kubrick, his wife, said that he planning for your next trip. Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Eat the one thing he really regretted was that he didn't make more films. Uh, and I I think we all feel the same. Um, yeah. And, yeah, he had his unfinished product, uh, projects, uh, the Napoleon biopic, um, which is now apparently based on his script being made into a television miniseries. That, yeah, there's plans for that. There's the fact that he tried so long to get AI made, but before he died, he kind of gave it over to Steven Spielberg with his blessing and said it was far more his type of film. Uh, which uh, and there's a there's a nice few credits on on AI, which basically dedicate the film to Stanley Kubrick, which is nice. Um, so yeah, final question then: your favourite Kubrick film? Uh, I'm going to start with you, Jerry. It's very difficult. I was torn between Doctor Strangelove 
and Paths of Glory. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm going to have to go for Paths of Glory. Nice. You're in good company there, then. Spielberg's favourite. <laughs> it's just... It, it feels like a proper film. Is yeah. the best way. It, it, all through it, it's just like, uh, this is a proper film. It's, it's, it's great, but it's got that sort of... You can't quite explain to anyone why it's so brilliant mm. if they haven't seen it, but it's got that kind of intangible quality that all great films have. Yeah. I win. Uh, yeah, as I've already said, I think 2001 Space Odyssey. Mm-hmm. Um, you it, love films with apes in, don't you? I just love the apes. <laughs> that's it, yeah. Even more so now I know it was Ronnie Corbett as yeah. uh, designed for them. <laughs> Yeah, so, so you, I mean, it's 2001. I think yeah. it's just, you know, everything about it is, it, it, it's just incredible. Okay, and Steve? Uh, probably Doctor Strange Love. Yeah, oh. nice choice. No, oh, a new, a new favourite yeah. for Steve. That's nice. Um, mine, I said it earlier, I think it is just Clockwork Orange, just kind of edging out Doctor Strange Love. Um, but uh, it, it is, you know, it is. It feels almost pointless because I can't... I just don't know a director with so many brilliant films and so few poor films. It's just... I th- yeah, the fact that he made so few films and they're all so brilliant. Um, so, yeah, that's that's it. Stanley Kubrick, um, God bless you, sir. You're inducted into our corridor of praise. Steve, do you want to say goodbye and everything on tune? Oh, have I got to do that now, have I? <laughs> uh, yeah, so what's next week, James? Next week, we, we completely... Sw- we're doing a cinematic 180 from an hour celebrating the films of Stanley Kubrick to our main review, which is G.I. Joe Retaliation. A film that Kubrick probably would have loved to have made if he was still yeah. around. <laughs> unfinished uh, project. I think yeah. he would have worked really well with Bruce Willis and The Rock. <laughs> he would have drawn he would have drawn a top performance out of, out of The Rock The That's... Rock would respond to that kind of direction he yeah. can tell oh yeah The Rock yeah. doesn't need it team bring it yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah so that's all for this week thanks to everyone who contributed uh, including Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and Stanley Kubrick for making films and that uh, we'll see you next week with G.I. Joe Rise of the Silver Surfer or some crap <laughs> <laughs> I know I've made some very poor decisions recently but I can give you my complete assurance that my work will be back to normal stop Dave will you stop Dave My mind is going. There is no question about it. If you'd like to hear it, I can sing it for you. Yes, I'd like to hear it now. Sing it for me. It's called Daisy. Oh, for
different for the boxer. Yeah, mine was uh, a clockwork orange. I remember I was uh, 17, I think, and I was, I might, like Owen, I might have seen Spartacus at an earlier age, and I remember seeing it, you know, the, all the kind of Swords and Sandals films kind of merged into one before a certain age for me. Um, but yeah, it was, like, I remember getting a clockwork orange off of the friend of a friend, and it was a black and white kind of pirated copy because it still wasn't available in this country and that it was at a time i was just start i was studying media at college at the time uh, and i watched that and it it just didn't look like anything i'd ever seen ever uh, and i think that one really stuck with me um yeah kubrick uh, i only realized quite recently stanley kubrick wasn't english uh, i feel really stupid about this now it was probably weeks ago rather than even months ago <laughs> because I, I remember when he died <clears throat> it was the fact you know stanley kubrick the eccentric film director who lived in england like and made all his films in england i just i just naturally assumed that he was english um but no he was actually born in brooklyn which i'm sure all of you knew um his dad bought him a camera on his 13th birthday which triggered his passion for photography and that kind of like stayed throughout his life. When he was 16, he sold a photograph of a newspaper vendor uh, mourning the death of FDR to Look magazine, soon became a staff photographer on the magazine, and then left to, to make films. Uh, made a number of short films. The most famous one is Day of the Fight, which I've seen. It's a really, really interesting 15-minute short documentary about the boxer Walter Cartier. But he soon, soon started making features and self-financed his first feature in 1953, which is Fear and Desire. Um, now, I've only seen a very badly deteriorated copy of this film. Uh, it, in nice symmetry, it's, it was the last film of Kubrick's that I watched to complete the cycle after the first one was also a badly deteriorated black and white copy of the film that I shouldn't have been watching. Um, but it's not great. I know Owen's seen it as well. Um, there's a few shots in there, isn't there, Owen, where you think, oh, hang on, this is a director of some kind of style. But oh, overall... yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, overall, it's a pretty poor film. I mean, I, I was um, not so much disappointed in it because I kind of expected it to be quite bad anyway, knowing that it's the film he tried to destroy and erase from history. But, um, <laughs> yeah, there are, there are the odd bit in there where you think, um, yeah, that's the Kubrick style. That's He's sort of developing his own method from, from yeah. quite an early stage, but yeah, it's a pretty cool and film. talking about war as well. You know, looking at the, yeah, uh, yeah. the abstract of war and things like that. Um, two years later, he went on to make *Killer's Kiss*, which is a film noir about a washed-up boxer, a taxi dancer. I didn't realise taxi dancers were a thing. I had to look that up. Um, it's you used to be able to just pay people like by the minute to dance with you in clubs bizarre um, oh, I met, like on the street like you stuff. yeah no 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 it was in clubs it was, <laughs> kind of all, it was it's like kind of like strip clubs but with clothes on what's the point in that um, <laughs> no, exactly <laughs> and that's why this film didn't work Steve um uh, yeah, and she is the object of some unwanted affection from a gangster. Uh, again, made it for peanuts. He was on welfare himself at the time. And again, it's it's another interesting work in that it's not great. It's better, a lot better than Fear and Desire. Um, it's got use of voiceover, which would become a very common theme in a lot of his films. And it has got some brilliant use of light. It was quite interesting. He sacked the sound recorders from this film. Yeah, he planned to record all the sound on location, 
but the sound record is boom mic kept getting in the way with his lights and he decided he'd rather keep his lighting uh, than the sound and all the sound was dubbed in in, in post um, it was also the last film that Kubrick made which wasn't based on an already existing source and for the rest of his career he would adapt existing stories um, in 1956, uh, Killer's Kiss hadn't been a huge commercial success, but it did bring Kubrick to the attention of the industry. Followed up in 56 with his first hit film, which is The Killing, uh, I think symptomatic of Kubrick himself. The Killing is a heist film about a man who plans an audacious robbery with perfect precision, only to have random factors intervene and leave him struggling to stop his entire life <clears throat> unravelling. Now, Owen, I know you've seen The Killing. Um, what did you think of it? Uh, no, I really like it. I think it's um, one of the best sort of noir films that I've seen, actually. Uh, but it's, again, I mean, it is the same sort of thing with... It's the lighting that stands out for me in The Killing, rather than the sort of heist, uh, yeah, the heist story to it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it sounds... I don't like to talk about the technical stuff of films very much because uh, basically I'm, I'm not very knowledgeable in it. <laughs> but it is on this topic. Yeah, but I mean, it, it, in all of Kubrick's films, it's the lighting that, that makes them, I think. Um, yeah. Particularly in The Killing, where you've just got like a little table that's lit and everything around it is shadows. We have yeah. people walking through, like, particularly because it's in black and white, I think, that makes it all um, these various shades of grey and it, it just looks really really impressive yeah yeah and there's some interesting tracking shots as well and mm. um and again it, it playing around with narrative instruction and the fact that the the narrator himself is an unreliable narrator was is an, is an interesting yeah it, very interesting use of that that idea um the next year though is i think 57 kubrick made his first truly great film uh, which is Paths of Glory. Steven Spielberg said it's his favourite film. Uh, David Simon said it was a major influence on him while he was creating The Wire. Uh, it's an anti-war film about a suicidal charge from the French trenches in the First World War and the subsequent court-martial for cowardice faced by an apparently randomly selected group of soldiers, essentially to cover up the incompetence of the officers involved in the order. Uh, I think this is the first of our films that we're going to talk about tonight where all of us have seen it. So, Jerry, your, your thoughts on Paths of Glory? Oh, it's a magnificent film. The, the only way to describe it is it's just magnificent from start to finish. It's just brilliantly done. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a magnificent film. Absolutely magnificent. Like, from start to finish, you just... It's, it's just brilliant. Um, I think he owes a lot to Kirk Douglas. Mm -hmm. I think the acting is brilliant. And I think, um, you know, James, you were saying about the speech. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's... It, it, I think if I'd seen this film before we did the triple bill on greatest movie speeches it would have been one of my entries it's it's a, a wonderful indictment of and it, it's what um david simon was talking about when he created the wire the kind of the middle management of something like war uh and how uh the responsibility is just passed down the buck is passed down and down to the lowest common soldier type thing it's a it's a very very interesting uh, denouncement of war um, and it's also based on a real case uh, it's a fictionalized account of a real case but cases like this actually they were rare but they did happen in the uh the french infantry during the first world war and that actually make knowing that fact while i was watching it it just made me even angrier to be honest uh, and that it's, is part of the film's power i think there's, there's some irony in the french army having a trial for cowardice <laughs> Somebody had to say well done, Steve. 
But did you watch this today, did you, Steve? Yeah. What did you think? I thought it was great. It was a yeah. Yeah, great acting performance. His really, you know, took took the film to to its peak. But it was a, yeah. You know, it's a it's a good story. It's shot well. Um, yeah, it's it's just a fantastic film all round. And talking about you know, we've been talking about Kubrick references, and the fact is, Kubrick is one of the most referenced directors in pop culture. Um, and the courtroom scene, there is a really really good homage to it in Black Goes Forth. And in fact, I think a lot of Black Goes Forth, that entire series, is. Uh, owes a huge debt to Paths of Glory. Um and and I don't I I'd imagine that Kubrick would have been would have been quite pleased with that because he did have a very kind of black, bleak sense of humour at times. The other interesting thing about Paths of Glory is the woman who comes out at the end to sing for the soldiers in that beautiful moment mm. became the woman that Stanley Kubrick married and spent the rest of his life with her. Uh, and I think that's that's quite a nice little uh clash of real life and film life there and um yeah nepotism james we call that nepotism he married her after <laughs> it he met her on set he met her on set and i think that's a nice story like i was like to point out that he divorced his second wife to marry this girl yeah but then he did spend he did spend 40 years with her so he, it wasn't just a fling so I'll, I'll give and he had two children with her and they all lived happily together you don't get it right first time all the time you can't all be like me, people. That's what I'm saying. Um, then Path of Glory took Kubrick to uh, Spartacus in 1960. In fact, it was Kirk Douglas who got Spartacus's um, first uh, director fired and insisted that the studio hire Stanley Kubrick, uh, who he'd worked. Now, I haven't seen Spartacus for a very long time. Um, has anyone seen it quite recently? Uh, I saw it in February last year. Okay, so how does it compare to the rest of Kubrick's body of work, considering the fact that Kubrick himself said this was the one film where he didn't feel like he had uh, control over it? Yeah, I mean, basically, it's Kirk Douglas's film rather than Mm -hmm. Stanley Kubrick's. I think he, although it's, um, you know, I think it's quite well known Kubrick and Kirk Douglas sort of had a bit of a fall in it whilst making this, and I think they vowed to not work with each other again afterwards. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's... Um, I mean, I'm not a massive fan of these epic films anyway, you know, like Ben-Hur and... It's it's probably not his... It probably ranked quite lowly for me, mm-hmm. partly because it doesn't really seem like um, a Kubrick film. We, know, we mentioned sort of um, uh, The Killing, which mm-hmm. is... It is very Kubrick. Essentially, it's very Kubrick in its its style and its look and the way it's it's filmed and it's, the speeches, everything like that. Spartacus isn't. It just. It's an. It, I mean, it's a, it's a good epic film, but mm. it's not really my cup of tea. Um, yeah, it's one of the only films where he was literally just a director on it. He had nothing yeah. to do with the script. He wasn't producing. He didn't have any extra. He It was like he'd come in to do a job, um, mm. and I think he. He didn't like that experience. Although it did mean that the success of Spartacus, it was nominated for a huge amount of Oscars, um, meant that he could then do what he wanted to do. And it was that stepping stone. The the next one he decided to make was actually um, Vladimir Nabokov's uh, highly controversial book, Lolita. Kubrick moved to England in 1962 to make it. He wrote the co-wrote the screenplay uh, with Nabokov. 
and he toned down some of the more sexually charged elements of the the book, um, the story about Humbert Humbert, the professor who falls in love with a 14-year-old daughter of his landlady. So even just saying that sentence, especially in this current climate, just makes you think, whoa, hang on, that's... Yeah, that's a tricky subject to be doing a film about. And he did it in the early 1960s. I think film author Adrian Turner describes it as an epic comedy of frustration rather mm. than lust. Um, and he does tone down a lot of the more sexually charged elements of it. Um, and it's, it's quite a bleak film. Uh, wouldn't you agree, Owen? Oh, definitely. I yeah. mean, it, 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 it's hard to kind of pinpoint it into one category because is it a mm. kind of dark comedy mm. or is it some kind of psychological thriller of a film you know it's it's you can't really pin it down and yeah. um, I think that's part of its genius almost yes um, you know but you've got people in like Peter Sellers who mm. is normally associated with sort of comedic performances yeah. and he does steal every scene he's in in this yeah. film and he is a great on-screen character but it doesn't really, it kind of doesn't fit with the, the rest of the film's style. Because mm. where it's it's kind of so dark that it is comedy, yeah. um, doesn't, I mean, it's just such an odd film. Um, yeah. I'm still unsure whether I like it or not. Um, <laughs> I, I can appreciate how, how well made it is. Yeah. And I think it's a really interesting um, type of film. But whether whether I can say that I, I like it or I loved it. Uh, it's, yeah, it's a very, very weird film. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned Peter Sellers there, and uh, that it was the perfect bridge to his next film, 1964, mm. Dr. Strangelove. Uh, yeah, after the success of their first collaboration, Kubrick and Sellers reteamed uh, to film an adaptation of the factual novel Red Alert, which was about the potential for nuclear catastrophe between the two superpowers in the height of the cold war kubrick kept trying to work out how to play the story straight and it just it just wouldn't work straight and um felt the only way the story made sense is if he played it as a completely black comedy he said this doesn't it, if he tried to play it straight it didn't seem believable um uh, and all the salient points he wanted to be, make could be made better uh through the use of comedy um sellers was seen commercially as one of the highlights of Lolita. And apparently the studio would only finance Dr. Strangelove if he was given a minimum of four roles in the film or something like that. Um, how much he got paid for it as well. Yeah, yeah he got paid over half the entire budget of the film. <laughs> and, um, but you kind of think it's worth it, actually, <laughs> to be fair. Sellers is fantastic in this, in, in all three roles. It's really interesting. Kubrick himself admitted he didn't actually direct Sellers. He just kept at least three cameras on him at all times so as not to miss anything. Because I think Peter Sellers was at the height of his comic alchemy at mm. the time, um, and he plays um, the, the British uh, RAF commander, uh, the American president, and, of course, Dr. Strangelove, the, the former... Nazi scientist um, turned American uh, scientist. It's it is an incredibly funny film. I, I've literally just finished watching it again, and some of the lines are absolutely fantastic, and some brilliant um, performances from the supporting cast as well, especially George C. Scott uh, as the general who is really suspicious of the of inv of inviting the russians into the war rooms they're going to see the big board he keeps going on about <laughs> them seeing the big but they're going to see the board um um yeah um, steve you watched this today as well didn't you i've been very busy today 
Yes, yeah. <laughs> you've done a lot of homework. I'm very proud yeah. of you. What, what did you think of Doctor Strange? Love? Excellent again. Um, a kind of big because it wasn't. I didn't think it was an out and out comedy, but there was obviously a lot of funny parts in it. Mm. There's a lot of. I kind of felt like I'd seen the film already, though, through it being referenced in so many yeah. other any other programs, which goes which goes for many Kubrick films, it, which we spoke about really before does, we actually it? started yeah. recording. There's a lot of them that if you a lot of references, and especially things like The Simpsons, start making sense once you watch the Stanley Kubrick film for the first time. You think, I get that now. Yeah. I finally understand what that joke was. But no, the film was the film was brilliant. I did think it ended a bit abruptly, though. I don't know if that's just yes. me, but it just sort of ended out of nowhere. I mean, obviously it had gone on for the hour and a half that it was due to go on for, but it just kind of it just kind of stopped. And it was like, yes. all right, that's well, it now. You, you could argue, I suppose, that is, uh, that's symbolic of, of how a, a nuclear attack would go. Yeah. 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 Um, that, that scene of, of uh, the pilot falling to earth on a bomb. Yeah. Um, <laughs> still absolutely ludicrous but at the same time absolutely perfect for that film jerry um your thoughts on strange love i'm big big strange love fan mm. uh, i think it's fantastic um it's a bit like Pass of glory as well it's quite a brave film to make at the time very very mm. brave at the time yes because i mean with Pass of glory it wasn't i don't think it was the dumb thing there to sort of criticize the military and and sort of expose the hypocrisy kind of within the sort of the senior ranks of the army mm. as he does. So he, he's already done that kind of thing, but this blows it out of the water completely. I mean, this is just, it looks, it's, I think it's it's funny, funnier to us now because he's got so much of it so spot on. Yes. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it really does just nail all the stupidity and hypocrisy of the Cold War right in the middle of it, but sort of in the early stages of it as well. Yeah, and it's really interesting because apparently the scene where Peter Sellers is the RAF guy is trying to get through to the president and he hasn't got change That's to just use up. brilliant as well. Yeah, and apparently the US government actually changed a lot of their protocols because they saw that and thought, hang on, that might happen. And so yeah, <laughs> I just think... That's really scary. Um, and also, Did you hear the stuff about the, the B-52? Yeah, the, uh, it was on this brilliant document. I'll let you explain, Jerry, but I was watching um, Stanley Kubrick, A Life in Pictures, which is a fantastic documentary if anyone can get a chance to watch it. But, yeah, no, go ahead, Jerry. Yeah, I was doing some reading around Kubrick, and we've all been doing homework, but yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and and I, I hadn't realised at the time that the B-52 was really sort of... That was in use, and it was top-notch bomber you know what i mean that was that was that was the the main technological advance so they wouldn't clear anyone to look at it because it was actively used the, the american government refused to give them any support refused to tell them anything so what they had to do is there was there was a, a picture appeared in a some british like flying enthusiasts magazine and the set designers made the entire cockpit based on this one picture and then apparently like they got some air force pilots in to have a look at it and tell them if there was anything, you know, that was glaringly obvious. And they were like, oh, no, it's perfect. So Kubrick thought that um, the design team would, would like, be, like, sneaking in and we're, they were going to get all get done by the FBI and they, they, were, they were all going to get their heads smashed in for, for sort of illegally finding out how a B-52 looks. It's just yeah. crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, th- I, I do... I, Doctor Strangelove is one of my favourite films of, of Kubrick's and it is... 
I think it's the the one time where he really balanced um, pitch black comedy and absolute terror at the same time. And I can't imagine being an audience member watching that at the time, thinking, "Shit, this could happen." <laughs> it, it makes it so obvious that actually all this could happen. Uh, and you know, considering that the audience at the time were living in constant fear of a potential nuclear attack, that's it's an incredible film to have made at that I time. I suppose it, it kind of really emphasised how easy it could have happened during the Cold War. You just needed one mm. one renegade person in a position of relative power to kind of get it all going. Yeah, and apparently the character of Ripper, um, who interestingly is played by Sterling Hayden from The Killing, uh, and it was his first film that he'd done since The Killing, um, apparently he's based, despite the fact that there's a warning right at the beginning saying none of this is based on fact and none of it's based on real people, he's actually based on a US general who was very much into the idea of how much they could provoke the Russians into an attack. But usually, um, usually when there's that kind of warning at the beginning, you know full yeah. well that there is somebody who's based on yeah. somebody real in there. Exactly. And in this instance, yeah, it there definitely was like that as well, which is... And and there are a number of kind of real-life Doctor Strange loves as well, but probably not quite as manic. Um, but this was, this was originally a serious sort of thriller yeah. as well. Yeah, exactly, and and Kubrick tried to do it that way, and he did it as a, when he did it as a comedy. His producer said, "I can't go with you on that. You're going to ruin your career. But if you do this as a comedy, you're going to ruin your career." And and he himself has admitted, actually, no, it's one of my favourite Kubrick films of all time. Um, Stanley knew what he was doing there. It's it's genius. One of my favourite things as well is towards the end, during Strange Love's last kind of big speech, towards the end, it cuts a lot. It, it, you know, the camera doesn't just stick on him as he does his speech. And the reason it cuts a lot is because all the cast around him just kept cracking up with laughter. And <laughs> the cuts are literally the only usable footage they could get because Peter Sellers just kept everyone cracking up on set, which, uh, again, is just it's fantastic to hear, especially when you hear stories later on of how much of a nightmare it was on a Kubrick set. And quite often, listening to the actors, they tell a very, very different story. Um so from Strange Love on to nineteen sixty eight. before we do that, James. Oh yes. I think me and Steve need to just mark uh, a little bit of appreciation for the fact that this was uh, James L. Jones's movie debut. Yes. Yeah. Did you notice him, Steve? The voice of Darth Vader. Yeah. 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 So more reasons to be thankful. Yeah, exactly. Launch that man's career. That's yeah, or a, else, that's a nice or else we could have had a Darth Vader with a with a Somerset accent and it. Really wouldn't have been as menacing, would it? Wouldn't have been the same. I think you haven't heard what the actual onset Darth Vader voice was, by the way. I've I've heard it. It's you know. Yeah. Uh, oh, fine. YouTube. The force. Yeah. The force is strong with you, my lover. <laughs> it's, just... it's the least sinister thing you've ever heard. Yeah. It's like someone. It's like a drunk guy at a West Country wedding is taking the mick out of Darth Vader. And trying to yeah, just it it genuinely stop. is yes, it's amazing. <laughs> um, so yeah, so luckily Stanley Kubrick did a big favour for sci-fi. There, he did an even bigger one. Although I know at least one person in this pod who might disagree. In 1968, Kubrick's next project would literally change the face of film forever. Not my words, Lynn. The words of Steven Spielberg. <laughs> Kubrick's collaboration with uh, Arthur C. Clarke in adapting his short story, The Sentinel, 
Uh, it won Kubrick his only Oscar for visual effects, which it just seems so. I can't, I can't, I'm still angry at the fact that this man received that one single Oscar. Um, I think he was angry as well because he didn't even bother to go get it, did he? Yeah, exactly. Um, this is his most divisive film, I think. Uh, critics and audiences at the time were completely at odds on whether it was um, a genius piece of cinema or pretentious waffle going on for too long. I remember the heated discussion we had on the pod when Steve didn't give it the best review in the world. Um... So, yeah, Steve, I'll let you open the case for the prosecution yeah, first. I didn't think it was pretentious waffle. I just didn't get on with it. I just watched it and didn't <laughs> and didn't enjoy it. I found it dragged on. It was a, it was mm. a bit boring for many for most parts of it. But I didn't think it was pretentious. And I, can oh, see, okay. I can see why it's so highly thought of, and I can see why so many people like it. I just didn't. Yeah, I'm, and I can see why people don't like it. Um, but I, I, I just, I'd hate to be in a world where I didn't love 2001 um Owen I know you're a big fan oh yeah I mean it's I think it's my favourite <laughs> Kubrick film actually mm. it's it, it, it's just incredible the first time I, the first time I saw it um I watched it in HD on the TV and I just thought this is absolutely fantastic I even even though you get stuff in it that's you know, you don't get films anymore. You've got the interval bit in the middle. Yeah, I love He's that. just got a bit... <laughs> just yeah, just leave the intermission. I noticed that was also in Barry Lyndon as well, on the yeah. print of Barry. I love the fact they've just left intermissions in there. That's fantastic. That's brilliant. But, you know, then I, the next time I watched it was just in bed on my own with a little... Um, like my screen on my phone watching the, the film. And it just... Even in that tiny little screen, in, like, over, the, you know, a, a course of an evening... It still just blew me away, and I think it's um, testament to just how fantastic a film it is. Mm. Jerry. Oh, yeah, I'm with Owen. I haven't watched it on a phone screen. Like, but I, I imagine it's powerful enough to sort of transcend whether it's on a massive cinema screen or on a tiny little screen. It's just fantastic. Yeah, and what I love is, as well, this is the first time, really, um, although he did it, with strange love but his use of music um the the combining of images and music and it's i was listening to a a kubrick best of cd earlier the the music in a kubrick film and um it made me think he he did decades before but with classical music basically what tarantino has done um in the last 15 years he just finds music um that some of it famous some of it not so famous and just gives it an entirely new context. And he kind of makes bits of music, he, he gives them a, new, a second life um, by combining them with his images. And you, you think of... Uh, the fact is, loads of the music he uses now is completely in our head. Also, Sprach Zarathustra, um, The Blue Danube. Both of those bits, in, they're massively famous bits of music, but we know them because they were used in 2001 Space Odyssey. Um, and I, I find that really, and they were used beautifully there as well. And it, I, I believe, he had them in there just as test bits of music, just as a test score, um, with the idea to actually create an original score for 2001. And then he was just, no, it works without it. But I'll, I'll just use this music that I've, I've put in there. And it's, it, I, I do love the use of music. Um, the other thing as well that I do made me laugh when I was reading reading up on this. Apparently, that same year, Planet of the Apes received a special Oscar um, 
which had been given to them for their work on makeup. Uh, it was kind of like, oh, let's let's acknowledge the work that Planet of the Apes did to make these incredibly lifelike ape people. And apparently, one of the the production team, uh, the present at the Oscars that night, said, "What the hell did they think we used? Real ape men?" And they got really angry <laughs> at the fact that Planet of the Apes had got this special award. And they were like, "Did you not see the apes at the beginning of 2001?" Um, and Interesting fact about that, by the way, is that Ronnie Corbett was used as the makeup model for the chimps, I think. <laughs> no way. <laughs> yeah, he never appears in the film, like, but, um... Wow. <laughs> when they were modelling the sort of, the chimp yeah. costumes, and they were trying to get the makeup right, they used Ronnie Corbett. That's amazing. How makeup is, model. There how, you go. How does he get that gig? How do you get... <laughs> I have no idea. It was Absolutely all filmed fine. at uh, uh, Elstree, wasn't it? So that's... Yeah, else, um, there would have, he probably was filming the two Ronnies next door and just bumped into Kubrick. Oh, imagine that dinner party. <laughs> um, and and I have to say, one of my favourite bits is just the fact that the very last words in the film, which occur about forty minutes before the end, and it's again so brave just to have pretty much forty minutes of very ambiguous dialogue-free film towards the end of the film. But, it, uh, yeah, I love the fact that it says its origin and purpose still a total mystery. And they're the last words spoken in that film. And I love the fact that you could basically just say that about the film itself. Uh, yeah, it's hugely, hugely divisive. Um, af- after after that, Kubrick planned to do a Napoleon biopic, fell through, um, and so he needed something quick and cheap to make. And he settled upon an adaptation of Anthony Burgess' A Clockwork Orange, which is the story of gang leader Alex and his enforced semi-lobotomy for violent crimes against the state. Huge box office success for Warner Brothers. Uh, at one point, it was their second highest grossing film of all time. But copycat crimes reported in the UK press, and let's be honest, no one really knows how much crime was actually inspired by the film, if the UK tabloids are anything to go by. But um, Kubrick received death threats and persuaded the studio to pull the film from the UK, and it wasn't officially available until after his, his death in 1999. So, uh, A Clockwork Orange on go. Go to you first, Jerry. Um, yeah, it was a considering that 2001 probably was a bit divisive. Mm. This is not the safe bet you would go for after <laughs> doing that, is it? <laughs> um, I, I mean, I've spoken about this before because I only watched it like last year, mm. and it's a good film. I don't think it's outstanding or one of the best ever, but it's a very good film. Um, I think, but I think my favourite bit about it is the fact that he improvised the um, singing of the rain bit. That's mm. that's the thing that sticks in my head is that he, he that wasn't scripted. Yeah. When you think how many revisions Kubrick made to scripts. But but at the same time, he did allow his actors to improvise when he trusted them because you had obviously Peter Sellers got to improvise loads of uh, Doctor Strange. But The Shining, here's Johnny, is also an improvised line which Jack exactly. Nicholson came. So and and again, it just says. It, it seems to me he had a great relationship with actors, which goes against a lot of the rumours um, that you heard about him being a terrible, difficult director to work with. It well, seems... he's often, I mean, he often described himself as being a photographer first. Yeah. He? I mean, that was what he always, what he was kind of known mm. for, I guess, yeah. is that he, 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 could, he could shoot brilliantly, um, you know, fantastic-looking pictures, but he wasn't an actor, so he didn't yeah. direct the actors. He just let them do their own thing. I think yeah. you've said as much before on a previous podcast, haven't you? Yes, I, th- I think so, yeah. He, he did cast brilliant actors and that helped, um, uh, but the actors seemed to genuinely get on with him as well. He was, in fact, he pushed them hard. Um, he would push them hard. 
but ultimately i think they respected that he was he was being a perfectionist rather than just a contrary old mm. bastard he strikes me as like the alex ferguson of filmmaking do you know what i mean mm. he's a bit of a shit but they respect him because, because of the results yeah, yeah exactly and what it does for them as well and he might not be the most likable man mm. but there's times when he's likable enough do you know yeah. what i mean yeah and it, it seems result. offset he was an absolute lovely bloke he seemed to mm. you know um the other thing i get because clockwork orange is it's my favourite Kubrick film. It's one of my favourite films of all time. Um, but I just can't get past the irony of the fact that Kubrick received death threats from people who thought that he was inspiring violence with his films. Uh, it's just the, the sheer stupidity of that yeah. action um, sums up just why I think maybe the world didn't deserve Clockwork Orange at that time. Um, it, it's a real shame. But again, Clockwork Orange, another, like you say... Brave, brave choice. Uh, Burgess wasn't particularly happy with it either, was he? No, because um, well, Kubrick had read the American version of the book, which missed out the last chapter. Um, so the film is different from the book simply because the American print of the book missed out the very end of it. Um, but I understand Burgess kind of came around to that a little bit, but there, there was definitely some friction there as well. Mm. Also, i tell you what I didn't realise when I watched it as well. I only found out when I was researching this. Did you know Warren Clark is dim? Yes, yeah. Wow, that that really shocked me. <laughs> <laughs> There's a few... and I, I, Again, I keep forgetting, Leonard Rossiter yeah. um, in 2001 and again in Barry Lyndon. Um, there, there's, again, because Kubrick set up camp in England, you do find a few of these English actors kind of... There's a very British yeah. feeling to a lot of his work, I think. I definitely think so. I think he enjoyed living in this country. Um, and, well, you get the feeling of a disconnect in his work. He He's making films in an alien environment, and I think that probably helps. Um, and kind of going on to Barry Lyndon, 1975, um, it's interesting, I was watching a Martin Scorsese interview, and he said there was always an expectation with a Kubrick film. He was always under more pressure from his peers to deliver something special and original. And so when Kubrick announced he was adapting the 19th century William Makepeace Thackeray novel, The Luck of Barry Lyndon, Scorsese says they were looking, uh, they were expecting him to take period drama somewhere new, and in Scorsese's <laughs> words, and where he took it was the past. And it's, I only watched Barry Lyndon for the first time a few days ago, and it's an utterly, utterly beautiful film. I think it's the most beautifully shot of all of Kubrick's films. And it's because... Every scene looks like a watercolor. Um, Owen, you, 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 basically the person who told me to watch this film. Anyway, you, you came highly recommended from you. What would you say about Barry Lyndon? Well, exactly what you said. I mean, every scene, it's it's either like he's just took a single picture each time and then made a flick book of it. You know, mm. each bit is it's a very precise film. Mm. All of it is very precise. Like he uses um, he, also the film he uses just natural light. Yeah. You get some scenes where, you know, it's a really stony building, a really old-looking building, and all you've got is the sort of sun beaming through these these windows, and you've got the dust that's been sort of reflected through that, and it just absolutely looks fantastic. You're yeah. right. It's probably the, it probably looks the best of all his films, and and I say that as the person who rates the the, the look of of uh, two thousand one very yeah. highly. Yeah. Um, because it's, it's, he accumulated this huge stock of expensely, expensive Zeiss lenses that are meant to be put in satellite telescopes. And again, there's this story, uh, this story on this documentary where they're saying um, 
someone at the company was going, where have all these, we need some of these lenses. And they go, oh, we, no, we've sold them all off. He bought up the world's stock of these lenses. <laughs> and, everyone, and, and he just made his own cameras. And it was so he could shoot in candlelight. And it's incredible. And you think, when you've seen, a, you know, behind the scenes of a film set, how many huge lights and everything. He was just filming with candlelight. And it looks incredible. And I love that in some of the scenes, the actors just, he gets the actors to just pause for a second before, like, going on with the scene. So it is like you've just, you're presented with a tableau that's coming mm. to life. And he, come, he starts off quite zoomed in and then just slowly zooms out to show you the whole picture. It's incredible. It's, it's very episodic. And I think in lesser hands it would have been far better as a miniseries but i think kubrick just about gets away with it because it just looks so incredible the entire time is this the one he got on the ira hit list for oh i don't know i've not heard that it's it's like irish well it's irish yeah, it, yeah, it's yeah. got an irish character in it um and it's about there's a little bit about british rule i don't Having seen it, though, I wouldn't have thought there was anything hugely contentious. But then again, no, I'm quite ignorant of the struggle. So, has it, has it got? It's, it's, uh, there was a film. Mm. I, I did my homework, honest. Yeah, uh, where they were filming in Ireland. Right. Yes, they did they film English soldiers. Yes, the IRA didn't take family to it and put them on a hit list, so he, they moved oh. to filming. I think it was this film. Okay, that that would make sense because they did yeah. film bits of it in Ireland, and there were British soldiers. One of them played by Leonard Rossiter. Um, yeah, oh, that's really interesting. I didn't know about that. Yeah, I, mean, so, I think uh, one of the things about uh, Barry Lyndon, which it kind of brings true if you know that the, one of the other reputations Kubrick had, we've talked about quite a few of them, is that he makes quite emotionally cold films. Yes. So he makes a lot of films where people feel disconnected from the characters and it doesn't feel like they're, they're very human. I think that's... It, it, I mean, it can sound like quite a harsh criticism mm. to, to kind of generalise in that way. And in some cases, it might be quite true. But he, what he does is it's a very analytical portrayal of people, I think. Yeah. So it, you're, you're not supposed to kind of connect to them in a, um, you know, in a very emotional way. You're just meant to be an observer. Yeah. And I think this is probably... It, it, it epitomises that style of filmmaking that he has. You, you do view these people as characters in a story. Mm. Um, and I think it's it's one of its strengths. I think but it, as well, Barry Lyndon's kind of like the film that other filmmakers recognise as his best film. Yes, you know? yeah. You sort of mentioned, like, Scorsese. Scorsese came, says it's his favourite film, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it came out quite highly in the Sight and Sound poll as well. Yeah, and even higher in the director's one. I think yeah. I noticed it was, like, in the top 20 for the director's poll and it was about 59th for the critics' poll. So, yeah, it is one that directors absolutely adore and I can see why, because it is all about the framing. It's all about mm. the look of the film. Yeah, I mean, it's... um very sort of innovative so yeah but i mean it's yeah it's a fantastic film even aside for me going you know it's it's quite a good a well made film it's you know very technically accomplished and all that it's still at the heart of it a very good film so you don't have to be like a film snob to enjoy no um so yeah um poor box office performance uh and mixed reviews for barry linden meant that Kubrick kind of needed to return to commercial success, and he did so with an adaptation of Stephen King's The Shining, stars Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall. Uh, the Shining is now an established horror classic, telling the story of a hotel caretaker driven mad by the spirits that inhabit the Overlook Hotel complex that he's managing 
through the winter while he tries to finish his book. Um, Owen, I'd say you're our resident horror expert, so why don't you kick us off with The Shining? Uh, okay, yeah. I mean, like I said, the first time I saw it, I was about 15, and I didn't really like it. I think what I wanted was kind of um, a typical horror film, and that isn't really what The Shining is. No. I mean, it, it's Kubrick was a master at just turning his hand to any kind of genre, really. I mean, he, he sort of showed it. He could do comedy with uh, Doctor Strangelove. I think this was his attempt to do a horror-type film. Yeah. Um, but, it, I mean, it, it is fantastic. It wasn't until I watched it again a couple of times, and, you know, it's one of those films that kind of grew on me. I guess most of his films, when you rewatch them, they grow on you a bit yeah. more. Um, but particularly, I found The Shining that did that. It, I mean, it, don't get me wrong, it does get quite scary at times. Mm-hmm. Um, there's scenes in there with, um, you know, there's the bathtub, you know, and the, the lady in the bathtub. Yeah. Trying, trying, yeah, exactly. It still kind of sends shivers down your spine. And, and the, you know, the obvious what choice would be the lift, I guess. Mm. You know, with all the blood that comes just flooding out of it. Yeah. Um, it's got very memorable moments in it. And I think kind of what strings them all together is Jack Nicholson's performance, really. Yeah. It's just fantastic. I think I keep using that word for every one of his films, but it's true. I mean, he's just sort of fantastic. Yeah. Um, but as well, I, I, it's uh, interesting that uh, Stephen King hated this film, I think. Yeah. Considering it's based on his book and he decided to remake his own version. Yeah. Later that was awful. <laughs> yeah, Kubrick changed a lot of the original novel, didn't he? There, there, there is that. He he liked the idea. And I love the fact that he said it was it was a hopeful story. Um, Kubrick said he was talking to Stephen King about it. He said he felt that Stephen King's story was a hopeful story. And Stephen King was like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> and he said, well, just the fact that there's something after we die isn't that hopeful. And it's a really interesting insight into the way that Kubrick saw the, the, the story was the fact that he thought ghosts were potentially a positive thing. Um, if you watch, I mean, I watched this for the first time the other day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the DVD, there's an extra that's like the making of The Shining that's like filmed by Kubrick's wife. It's his daughter. It's his daughter. It's the daughter, yeah, yeah. And Nicholson, uh, he's on there and he says, like, I literally, I don't even learn the script anymore. I just wait till, till they give me the new one for the day. Yeah. Because they rewrote the script so often that he didn't bother to learn it. Yeah. He just typed him up a new copy every day because it changed yeah. so much. Yeah, and and uh, but he also said that uh, in later interviews, he said that kind of helped him be in character. He wasn't worrying about the script; he was just thinking about his character. Then helped him develop his character. Um, a fantastic thing in the sort of the bedroom scene where he's trying to hack into the, the bathroom. Yeah, with the axe. You know, everyone knows. I mean, even not having seen it, you know that scene. Um, and that that was one of the things where it, it felt very familiar, even though I'd not seen it, because it is so referenced. Yeah. And it's oh, so well done. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the, on that little documentary, there's a really interesting bit, actually, just before, as, they, as they're getting set up to start filming that, that scene, probably for the 50th time, but Nicholson's, like, he's going mental, mm. and he's, like, he's psyching himself, he's basically psyching himself up and getting into the character of being a raging lunatic. Yeah, but it's really interesting watching him try and work himself up into this frenzy to do it. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, and it's really it's a really interesting thing, just in general. You know, not specific to this film, but just the acting process. I mean, it, it was fantastic. And then he obviously improvises the line. Yeah, which is amazing. <laughs> 
Um, um, the other thing, one of the other bits of trivia I only found out quite recently, didn't know that at the time, um, the bit where Shelley Duvall um, discovers that he's just been writing or work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Um, and she goes through pages and pages and pages. But they were they were all hand-typed by uh, Kubrick's assistant. But the best thing is, for foreign markets, he made sh- he filmed <laughs> separate shots with it in different languages, rather than just have it subtitled at the bottom in every single major market. So in German, it was all Jack, all work and no play, makes Jack and Lobo in German, typed that many times as well. Apparently it took his assistant six weeks <sighs> Just spent six weeks typing those bits of paper. You'd hate filming. him, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> he, he, he got a strange loyalty from them. Um, he, he pushed them hard but and made them do weird things, but at the same time, he rewarded I'd, them. I'd, um... I'd want a bloody good pay rise if that was my job. <laughs> That's the only reward I'd be interested in. Um one of my favourite things about The Shining is the fact that Room 237 came out recently, which is a documentary I've spoken about on the podcast before. I won't go too much into that. But um, if you get a chance to watch it, 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 A, it gives you a nice insight into how The Shining was made. And about half of it is insight into how Kubrick worked and how The Shining was made. The other half is just absolute batshit crazy conspiracy stories about how he faked the moon landing. He, he was apparently the one who filmed... The moon landing wasn't he? The yeah. Apollo Eleven moon yeah, landing, and he, and he was it trying front to projection apparently, yeah, and he um, was trying to hint at it all the way through to Shining because the the little boy had an Apollo rocket on his jumper and everything. That's it. That's yeah. just one of them as well. Yeah. It, it's such a fantastic. I, I really enjoyed it as a documentary in terms of um, you don't go in expecting a serious examination of the work of Kubrick, and I think you'd enjoy that. Um, then a few years, actually seven years later, Kubrick released his final war film, uh, Full Metal Jacket. His longtime assistant, Jan Harlan, uh, not, I don't think that's the assistant that typed up all the notes, but um, he was kind of a shooting assistant. He said that unlike Paths of Glory, Kubrick was drawn to the source book, The Short Timers, because it wasn't anti-war, it wasn't pro-war, it was literally just an account of how, how things are. And it, it's very much a film of two halves, Full Metal Jacket. Um Steve, what what were your thoughts on Full Metal Jacket when um, you saw it? I haven't seen it for a long time, but it mm-hmm. was just like that iconic uh, war film. You think of mm. if someone says name a war film, you name Full Metal Jacket. That's interesting, actually, because it it got overtook. I think pl- it took so long making it that Platoon kind of came in and stole its thunder because Platoon came out the year before. And I, I like the fact that you would name Full Metal. I, Full Metal Jacket. I'm, I mean, if you, I if you ask me to name five, Full Metal Jacket and Platoon yeah. be in there. But be in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it is... I think it. a lot of people think of Apocalypse Now and possibly Platoon as the iconic um, Vietnam War films, but and, and I can't help thinking Full Metal Jacket kind of lives in their shadow a little bit, but maybe, maybe I'm... I, I saw it probably when I was... I was probably 18, 19 when I saw it. Um... And it, it, it did stick with me, but it didn't feel like a war film at times. I don't, I don't know. Owen, I don't know. Yeah, what... I mean, it's, it, I, th- I think it doesn't feel much like a war film because it's, you know, it's a film of two halves, isn't mm. it? The, the theme that runs through the whole thing is duality. Mm. So, you know, whether it's the good and the bad and us and them and, you know, you've got the, the first half and the second half of the film. It's, it, it doesn't feel like a war film because it's kind of like um, about 
soldiers rather than war. Yeah, you know, it's, it's about the people who who are part of this this conflict rather than the conflict itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know when you when you get a lot of war films, it, even I guess um, you know, Paths of Glory is a little bit more. Uh, it feels more like a war film because of yeah. the, the way that it's shot. Whereas this is, as I say, it's the characters that make it, and I think they're the kind of essential element, really. Um, particularly in the first half when you've got um, Pyle and uh, the way that he's treated, it's just brutal. The whole film is brutal, yeah. and that's not because of war. It's, it's brutal because of because of the way that he's treated by fellow soldiers. You know. Yeah. Um, it's um, yeah. I mean, it's 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 fantastic. I love. Uh, Joker as well. I think he's such a fantastic character. The way he kind of he sort of um, it captures everything really that you want in a good guy, you know. But he's also what he's doing is, you know, he's a soldier who's there to kill people. Yeah. It's, it's a bad guy thing. So again, it kind of plays on that duality theme, which which um, it is sort of highlighted by his symbol on his hat. Yeah, his helmet, you know, the peace sign and born to kill written on there. <laughs> It's um yeah I mean I, I really like Full Metal, Full Metal Jacket I'd probably say um it's second best film actually mm-hmm. um I I came to it when I was a bit older I think I was probably I mean probably only a, a few years ago actually two or three years ago when I first saw it um and I've loved it ever since really for for a long time it was my favourite Kubrick film um yeah I mean I don't know, I don't know whether anyone else here how highly they rate it amongst the rest of his his um, filmography. It's probably in my kind of tier two. It's just below my very favourite ones. Jerry, how long is it since you've seen it? Oh, it's a good seven, eight years since I've seen it, but I still remember it, you know. Mm-hmm. It's memorable. I, I love the stuff about... Um, I mean, the drill the drill sergeant is the iconic thing about it for me. Mm-hmm. That's that sticks in my head. And there's some really, if you ever, if you want, if you've got a few spare few minutes, read about the guy and how he got the role and things. It's just fantastic. He, he like sent a videotape of him just like shouting abuse at people. Yeah, he like, wasn't an actor, was he? He was he was no. an actual drill sergeant. Yeah, <laughs> and he sent a video of him just abusing, you know, shouting insults and things. Never repeated himself in like 15 minutes. <laughs> uh, and then he like turned up and, and demanded that um, Kubrick give him the. Given the part because the other the others went on went up to it, and Kubrick said no, and he and he like shouted at him and told him to stand up when he was being spoken to, and Kubrick stood up, <laughs> and he and then Kubrick was like, oh yeah, okay, you're you're pretty good. Was that just instinctively just stood up? So uh, there you go. He also um, he he break his arm or his wrist or something during filming. Did he? Yeah, I'm gonna rewatch this. I'm gonna watch apparently in a lot of scenes he doesn't move his left arm at all. He was like involved in a pretty major car crash, but like being him, he just like he just like walked it off or something. So yeah, he, he's he basically oh no, I think it might have been his ribs or something. He he, he got smashed into in his car basically, um, and just just carried on and flashed his lights until someone stopped. He's hardcore, that man. <laughs> yeah. God, yeah. Um, uh, then it took us 12 years before we got to see another Kubrick film and it was sadly to be his last uh, 1999 based on the 1920s Austrian novel Eyes Wide Shut and its director was the subject of fervent speculation rumour, tabloid fantasy and uh, it's kind of 
I actually remember this at the time. I remember seeing a lot of the news stories at the time. I was at that age where I was just getting into film and I knew of Kubrick and I knew that this this was happening and, and people knew about this. The fact is all people knew was that there was this secretive production and that sex and fidelity was a theme and that it starred Hollywood power couple Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. Um and so it just added rumour. There was rumour after rumour. It still holds the world record for the longest continuous film shoot to over 400 days. Um, but insiders say this isn't because it was a troubled shoot. It's just Kubrick was given anything he wanted by Warner Brothers and all Kubrick ever wanted from them was time. Yeah, yeah. His films were relatively cheap to make and um, all, all he demanded was that uh, he'd never wrap a shot until he was 100% satisfied. Uh, a few stars, ca- a few actors came and went, but um, apparently it was more out of their other commitments than you know it being a troubled shoot. After two years of making the film, he delivered a first cut to the studio along with Cruz and Kidman. Everyone was really happy with the results. Kubrick said to his assistant, it was one of his proudest works, and within a week he died peacefully at his home in Hertfordshire at the age of 70 years old. Eyes Wide Shut again is another one that I only really recently rewatched. I watched it when it, not long after it first came out, it must have been when it was first on video. And I'll be honest, I didn't get it at the time. And I think a lot of that was because of the way it was marketed and because of the prior um, preconceived ideas I brought to this film about what the film should be about. Having left it for so long, I, it's a brilliant film. I, I really, really enjoyed watching it the other night. Um, it's, again, it's wonderfully shot as ever. Brilliant what, what, performance. What's different about it, James? Because I watched it years ago. Yeah. And I didn't rate it that highly, so I'm intrigued to see what... Well, what I think part of it depends on what what you are bringing into it. Part of it could well be I am now a married man. Uh, you know, I am a married family man. And so parts of the plot hit home with me where they might not have otherwise hit home as a younger person. It's a very mature work. I don't think it is a film for younger people in the sense that it's a world which I they can I can't imagine they can relate to. And unlike, say, his war films, actually, it's not very hugely exciting. Um, so I think there's that. There's also the fact there is a lot of... Th- it's, it's a very hopeful film. I think it's the most hopeful of Kubrick's films as well. And, I, and I, again, I didn't see this at the time, um, but it's actually about a couple who go through hell and stick, you know, kind of are still together at the end of it. And that's, that, that's, that's a hopeful film. And, and that's what I bought. Maybe I bought my life experiences to it and were, was able to enjoy it more. I don't know. What do you think? Cause Owen, I know you're a fan of it. Yeah. I, I love Eyes Wide Shot. Um, I think it's just a brilliant film. I think what happened to some people is, you know, as you mentioned, it's the way that it was kind of billed, I guess, was, you know, this this sort of sexy film, and it's anything but a it's, sexy it's film. It's not sexy at all, no. No. I mean, it's, uh, it, 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 a lot of it is uh, involves sex and naked people, mm. you know. There's, uh, there's a mansion full of people shagging each other, basically. Mm. Um, but it's it's very <laughs> unsexy. It's, mm. it's, it's more about desire, I guess, yeah. than it is about... Um, you know about lust so it, it could have put people off or it could have given the wrong impression you know i think i um, think the marketing well not even necessarily the the direct marketing from the studio but the the idea of what the film was about that was put about in popular culture was it was basically a sexual erotic thriller 
and yeah. it, it's really not. No, I mean, I can see why it is built as, as a you know an erotic thriller because basically it's an orgy. You know, there's yeah. an orgy going on. A lot of it is around prostitutes and all this kind of thing. So I can see why it's like that. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it it almost made it into my triple bill as mm. one of my favourite Christmas films because it is. <laughs> I'd, I would have given that to you as well. Do you know, yeah. after all of that, watching it is really. Um, someone and someone else has said it's it's a Christmas film for grown-ups because yeah. that the that, that, there's a reason he filmed it Christmas. One of them is he gets to do some more fantastic natural lighting. Yeah, you know, it literally every scene has got a Christmas tree lighting it up in the corner. Um, apart from the stately home where the orgy takes place. Um, yeah. And it, yeah, it, it is a great Christmas. Um, um, I would have actually not argued with you on that one, Owen. <laughs> yeah, you, I thought you didn't like it till you re- rewatched it. Oh yeah, no. I, now I wouldn't argue with you. Now yeah. I wouldn't argue with you. No, that's right. Um, but yeah, it's yeah, it, it, it's an interesting, and I think it is a worthy final film for Kubrick as well. I really do. Um, it, it's interesting. Christiana Kubrick, his wife, said that he. The one thing he really regretted was that he didn't make more films, uh, and I, I think we all feel the same. Um, yeah, and yeah, he had his unfinished product uh, projects, uh, the Napoleon biopic, um, which is now apparently based on his script being made into a television miniseries. That yeah, there's plans for that. There's the fact that he tried so long to get AI made. But before he died, he kind of gave it over to Steven Spielberg with his blessing and said it was far more his type of film, uh, which uh, and there's a there's a nice few credits on on AI, which basically dedicate the film to Stanley Kubrick, which is nice. Um, So, yeah, final question, then your favorite Kubrick film. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Jerry. It's very difficult. I was torn between Doctor Strangelove and Passive Glory. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm going to have to go for Passive Glory. Nice. You're in good company there, then. Spielberg's favourite. <laughs> it's just... It, it feels like a proper film. Is yeah. the best way. It, it, all through it, it's just like, uh, this is a proper film. It's, it's, it's great, but it's got that sort of you can't quite explain to anyone why it's so brilliant mm. if they haven't seen it, but it's got that kind of intangible quality that all great films have. Yeah. Owen? Uh, yeah, as I've already said, I think 2001 Space Odyssey. Mm-hmm. Um, you it, love films with apes in, don't you? I just love the apes. <laughs> that's it, yeah. Even more so now I know it was Ronnie Corbett as yeah. uh, designed for them. <laughs> Yeah, so, so you, I mean, it's 2001. I think yeah. it's just, you know, everything about it is, it, it, it's just incredible. Okay, and Steve? Uh, probably Doctor Strangelove. Yeah, nice oh. choice. No, oh, a new, a new favourite yeah. for Steve, that's nice. Um, mine, I said it earlier, I think it is just Clockwork Orange, just kind of edging out Doctor Strangelove. Um, but uh, it, it is, you know, it is... It feels almost pointless because I can't... I just don't know a director with so many brilliant films and so few poor films. It's just... I th- you know, the fact that he made so few films and they're all so brilliant. Um, so, yeah, that's that's it. Stanley Kubrick, um, God bless you, sir. You're inducted into our corridor of praise. 
Steve, do you want to say goodbye and everything on tune? Oh, have I got to do that now, have I? <laughs> uh, yeah, so what's next week, James? Next week, we, we completely... Sw- we're doing a cinematic 180 from an hour celebrating the films of Stanley Kubrick to our main review, which is G.I. Joe Retaliation. A film that Kubrick probably would have loved to have made if he was still yeah. around. <laughs> unfinished uh, project. I think yeah. he would have worked really well with Bruce Willis and The Rock. <laughs> he would have drawn. He would have drawn a top performance out of, out of The Rock. The That's... Rock would respond to that kind of direction. He yeah. can tell. Oh yeah. The Rock yeah. doesn't need it. Team, bring it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so that's all for this week. Thanks to everyone who contributed, uh, including Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and Stanley Kubrick for making films and that. Uh, we'll see you next week with G.I. Joe, Rise of the Silver Surfer or some crap. I know I've made some very poor decisions recently, but I can give you my complete assurance that my work will be back to normal. Stop, Dave. Will you stop, Dave? My mind is going. There is no question about it. If you'd like to hear it, I can sing it for you. Yes. I'd like to hear it now. Sing it for me.